Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton. Hey, it's Matt from the Direct-to-Video Connoisseur here. Thanks again for listening to the DTVC podcast. Before we jump in, I wanted to quickly let you know that my new novel, A Girl and a Gun, is available on Amazon now, both on Kindle and paperback. It follows Justin, a successful writer, whose past as a scriptwriter for a fetish porn site comes back to haunt him and threatens to derail his career. As he's picking up the pieces, he gets an opportunity to make a movie called A Girl and a Gun with a rom-com star. Justin may have bitten off more than he can chew, though, because she's notoriously difficult to work with. If you're interested, you can find the link on our webpage, along with the link to my first novel, Chad and Accounting. If you have any questions, please reach out, and I thank you for the support. Now, on to the podcast. As always, this is Matt here, and today I'm joined by a very special guest. I have uh, Tom Jolife, who is a uh, screenwriter um, who wrote a recent film, uh, When Darkness Falls, um, also uh, wrote a film Renegade, which is coming out this fall from uh, Shogun Films, and then also uh, you write articles for uh, for Flickering Myth. Uh, welcome, Tom. And actually, did I pronounce your, your last name correctly? Uh, close. It's Jolife, so it doesn't sound anywhere near as fancy as it looks. Okay, yeah, John, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I realized after I hit record that we probably should have discussed that before I hit record. Um, how to pronounce your last name, because, yeah. Yeah, the same thing happens with my last name. People will have trouble with it. It's poorier, but um, it, yeah. it can also be French, with Poitier, so, yeah, it's always a, a different pronunciation. Yeah, I get that as well. I think some people assume it's French. I mean, it is based off a French name, but they give it a very kind of French pronoun- pronunciation sometimes. Yeah, yeah, that's mine too. Like it's yeah, because it's it's been Americanized um, over however many generations here. I guess anglicized maybe is the right term. Uh, poorier. It's just yeah, the, the, uh, people can't be bothered with the French, which I get. I, I'm I'm happy with it that way too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, excellent. Well, well, yeah. Now, um, I think you know we'll, we'll chat about uh, when darkness falls first. I think um, it's a film that uh, just came out recently. Um, it's available to rent here in the US on Prime, I believe. Um, and I think probably probably the same in the UK. Uh, so yeah, just in the US at the moment. And okay. um, we'll, have an up, we'll have a release date upcoming for the UK pretty soon. So I think at the moment, the US has got an exclusive window. Ah, okay. Around about three months, I think. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, it's, it's interesting because I, I, I just saw somebody, um, a, a director, um, Jay Horton, that I, I follow, he had just done an interview with somebody 
uh, with a distribution company about like, yeah, distribution rights and, and that kind of thing. Um, is that something where you have to sort of sign a deal with Amazon or is that you have your own distribution company that has the deal like that? Uh, so we had it signed to uh, a distributor in the US, uh, Desktop, and they've basically then put it out through a number of channels. So Amazon first, and then I think around about September, it's going to go to sort of uh, Tubi and things like that. So it'll be on um, sort of advertising video on demand, whereas at the moment it's kind of transactional pay-per-view. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah that, that kind of makes sense too here in the US because it does seem like that's the process with a lot of new movies that they start out um, on pay-per-view and then eventually they, they move into to Tubi. I think probably the most recent example that I can think of here in the US is Castle Falls, the Dolph Lundgren, Scott Atkins movie. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm not too sure what it is, but I think um, a lot of distributors now are kind of staggering their releases. So... Um, yeah, sometimes they'll release it through one channel, then like a few months later it'll be another, just so it kind of spreads out. And uh, I guess if you know if they if they release everything at once at the same time, there's a worry that maybe it kind of just tails off completely after a certain time. So I think they're just yeah trying to hit different windows. Yeah, that makes sense because I, I imagine like if something's available on Tubi, uh, you know, with free with advertising, or it's available to rent on on prime in the u.s people will choose Tubi for the most part at least the people that know of Tubi. yeah exactly yeah and i think almost you know also you get the kind of once it's fresh out on something there's a little you kind of get to the forefront of the search results and things like that so it's kind of makes sense i guess to stagger it over say six seven months yeah yeah that makes yeah. sense like, i think another film that you wrote recently is on Tubi, um, the, uh, what, what's the name of it? it was uh, Van Helsing. Um, uh, uh, oh, OK, Rathal yeah. Van Helsing, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I didn't even realize that was on uh, Tubi already. So yeah, that's that's good to know. Yeah, it, it's interesting because the IMDb entry for it, uh, let me see if this is the case. I, I think this is the case that the IMDb entry uh, doesn't list a director for the film for that film. No, I think what it the producers do so many films that um, essentially a lot of the filmmakers or you know the crew, you've you've got to really be able to do the IMDb yourself. So I mean, there's been a few occasions with a few of the films I've done where I've had to kind of update myself and put my name on. Uh, just uh, one of the producers, Scott Jeffrey. I've worked with him through uh, three or four different companies. Uh, so he's he produced Van Helsing. And uh, yeah, he, he must do about 20 films a year at the moment. And for the most part, he's the one, he would be the one, maybe one or two of the other producers who would deal with the IMDb page. That makes sense. Yeah, I, it's funny because um, so I, there was a, um, I don't know if he was a manager or a, a producer. He, he worked with... Um, uh, Mel Novak, uh, actor, you know, uh, does a lot of low budget stuff here in the U.S. And yeah. he would sometimes want me because the movie, he would get the movie on IMDb, but um, to get it on Letterboxd, you have to put it on the movie database. And so he was asking me if I could do that for him. So I did. I, there's a couple of no Mel Novak's movies. Like, I think there's like a, a shark attack movie or something like yeah. that. Oh, yeah. was that Dustin Ferguson, is it? Yes, was the director for yeah. them. Yeah, I believe. Yeah, yeah exactly. 
Um, and so, yeah, so I kind of put all the information on the, on the movie database and then it went on to letterbox. And so, um, yeah. And then I was doing uh, the podcast I did with, um, with Rich, Rich Haas about, um, absolute force and total force. He was like, yeah, one of these movies isn't even on letterbox. And I was like, oh, well, I know how to do that now. So I got the information <laughs> from IMDB and put it on there myself on the movie database. Yeah. I think the, you know, there's just such a massive content at the moment, so that's not really surprising. Yeah, and there's lo loads of different titles with my films, so a lot of them often change title and they don't get updated on IMDb either. So I think on IMDb, it's not. Uh, so I think it's called Van Helsing Hunter of the Damned, but on IMDb, it's still listed as uh, Wrath of Van Helsing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting too. So, I mean, when it comes to those title changes, is that something where uh, they just sort of look at it and think like, well, this this title won't won't sell, or it sounds too much. It doesn't either sounds too much like something or not enough like something to to arouse interest. Yeah, I mean, I guess I never quite know the logic. Sometimes, I mean, the first trailer for it was just called Van Helsing, um, so I think at some stage one of the territories or one of the the distributors was probably considering just having a plain Van Helsing title, but I think they've obviously gone back and thought, you know, it's going to get confused with the um, uh, Hugh Jackman film. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they must have added in Hunter of the Damned. Yeah, that makes sense. It, it, it's funny with that. I, I you know, um, my wife and I were watching Goodfellas recently, you know, with Ray Liotta passing, we thought, you know, and we, we tend to watch that movie a good amount anyway, but um, I found out that, um, that Martin Scorsese was originally going to call it Wise Guy after the book that it was based on, but he didn't want it to be connected with the TV show Wise Guy that was popular at that time with Ken Wall, and it's one of those things that you don't even really yeah. think about, like, you know, Wise Guy, that show has been gone for, for decades now, and, you know, I, of course, I remember that it existed, but I wouldn't have thought that a movie like Goodfellas would be afraid of being connected. But of course, <laughs> at that time, yeah, he didn't want people to yeah. think it was the, the movie adaptation of, of the TV show. Yeah, it's just it's just a funny way the business works sometimes. And then you'll see other titles that just constantly get reused. I know the Jesse Johnson one was a bit confusing, I think, with um, Debt Collector, then Debt Collectors. Um, there was a bit of confusion there, really, between the first and the second one. And some of the titles on the different territories and i think the second one in the uk was called payback so they just went a completely different route with the title on that one yeah because i think in the us when that movie went to netflix when netflix picked that up they did change the title to debt collectors 2 or debt collector 2 i i think yeah yeah if i remember yeah i think they did yeah yeah that's the other thing too right is that you know from a uh, an artist standpoint you know whether it's a director writer you know they there's an idea of like the the title is, is a part of the art involved um uh, i was thinking about the, the recent shogun films um nemesis it's almost impossible to look that movie up on imdb because there are so many films uh called yeah. nemesis and it doesn't it, excuse me, it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't show up in the, in the search engine yeah well i guess so you, you know you've got the um the star trek and then obviously the, the albert pune film as well yeah, but, and then there's just a ton of other indie films called Nemesis that, uh, you know, I think yeah. with, with, with the, the, that being like the first effort from Shogun, I think that, the, you know, even with the names that are involved with the film, I think it just um, it didn't have the, 
so the cache to, to establish itself in the search engine is bigger than that. So yeah, a lot of times I'll, I'll look up Billy Murray if I need to get to that movie or Nick Moran um, and go through their IMDb. Yeah, it, it can be difficult sometimes because I mean, you know, there's so few, there's not really any original titles you can kind of, that you're left with at this stage. And then, you know, a lot of distributors for the most part, they'll want one or two word titles. So yeah, it's just, it's difficult to find that one that catches and that hasn't been used already. I mean, we've got that with Renegades. Um, there's, you know, there's a couple of films already, you know, there's the, um, there was one a few years back and then obviously more, a bit more famously, the Keith, Keith Sutherland and um, Lou Diamond Phillips film from the 80s. It's called Renegades, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because, the, the, you know, the film that, that we're going to be talking about, When Darkness Falls, there's also a lot of When Darkness Falls that have been out. But for some reason, when I type that one into IMDb, it's the first one that comes up. It's the, you know, I guess it's by most recent, but maybe it's because I've searched it a couple of times and it's remembering. But but I mean, it should remember me searching Nemesis a, a few times and it doesn't seem to do that <laughs> there. So Yeah. I think, you know, when the films are kind of in that release stage, they tend to get a little bit of a boost up the, the search charts. I mean, we had a problem with When Darkness Falls on Amazon, just our placement um, up until like a about a week after until it went up. Um, and it, we, we were even placing below films that were called Just Darkness Falls. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it's just it's a bit odd, really, sometimes about how where your placement is. Yeah, yeah, and is it, I mean, cause, you know, thinking about the the title of the film, like I, I wouldn't think like another title would be better than When Darkness Falls. But yeah, it's almost like you know, I think even with my my two novels, you know, my first one was called Chad and Accounting, and the second one was called A, a Girl and a Gun. And Chad and Accounting, there's no other Chad and Accountings on on Amazon, so I can just tell yeah. people go go look up Chad and Accounting. But a girl in a gun, there's like, you know, 10 DVD sets of, you know, femme fatales and things like that that are all over Amazon. So you, you really can't find it by searching a girl in a gun. And then, of course, my last name not being easy to spell, it's it's hard to, to direct people to where to find the, the novel because it's either yeah. try to spell my name or look up a girl in a gun and not be able to find it in there. So that's a, a, a point for me where it's like, OK, when I make, when I, you know, self-publish other novels, do I want to have that be part of the calculus in the title but then it's like you know you, you're settled on a title that you really like but I you know like I said I guess in your case you you write a a movie and have a title for it but the uh, you know in distribution they might just change it on you anyway yeah I think most of my titles have actually ended up being changed through the distributors I mean I did a film called Amityville Witches and then you know when I was originally writing there was nothing to do with Amityville at all um <laughs> It was just this change that the distributors kind of requested uh, halfway through writing it. They wanted to make it set in Am Amateurville to cash in on because, you know, they've got Amateurville Karen, Amateurville in space. They've got Amateurville everything at the moment. So they wanted to get in on that as well. Yeah. Is, um, that, is that Witches of Amityville Academy? Is that the? Yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, originally it was called uh, Witches of the Marcom Academy, which was based off one of the characters in the in the story but i think obviously amateurville witches which is where it is that's where what it's known as in most territories um i guess it's catchy so it's work it's done quite well as well so it it's um yeah it worked in the end anyway yeah it, it's interesting i think like that kind of thing i think um 
you know, like I, I think of like, you know, like the Blood Fist movies, for example, you know, where it was just like, yeah. none of them really have to do with the, the first one or two Blood Fists that Don the Dragon did. But it's just sort of like, let's take an action movie that Don the Dragon Wilson's in, you know, ro- that Roger Corman's producing, and we'll just put the, the Blood Fist uh, uh, title on it. Or or now it's like, you know, think of a movie like Hard Target 2, um, you know, with uh, Scott Atkins. that really doesn't have anything to do with the first Hard Target, but it's like, um, you know, that's a, a title that people recognize and, and see. And I guess, yeah, I guess if you're going through the myriad options on um, on Tubi, and you're looking for a horror film that night, and you see something about Amityville, you might think, oh, okay, yeah, let's let's check that out. Yeah, I think, yeah, that must be the thinking of it, and it's a nice kind of punchy uh, two-word title as well. Yeah. Whereas yeah. I think my first working title would have just um, got completely lost, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, right? I think, like, you know, I, so for me, I think w- w- when I'm choosing films on Tubi, a lot of times it's it's who's in the movie because, um, you know, I think of like, you know, by, by Hall of Fame and the, on the site and things like that. And it's sort of like, OK, let's see, you know, who's who's, you know, does this have Dolphin? Does it have Gary Daniels in it? Something like that. And so that, that, that in that case, I'm looking for a specific actor, which I guess that's part of the calculus, too. Right. Is if you've got a yeah. name actor for, you know, uh a few pages worth of, of, of script, you know, a day's worth of shooting or whatever, you can use them on the cover to also draw people. And I guess that's like the, the whole thing with, with a lot of the Bruce Willis movies that are out now. Yeah. I think at the moment you've got kind of two, two ways to do films. And one is like the concepts, which sells, I think that's still pre- predominantly the case with horror yeah. where you don't necessarily need a big name quite so much, but I think, you know, with action films and thrillers, with, in terms of what distributors are after, they they tend to want you know at least one or two names attached. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I think especially, I mean, you know, I mean the the, the Bruce Willis factor. I, I'm always, I mean, I, I you know we we kind of know now that with his health, that was a big reason why I think uh, people that he was friends with in the industry were trying to get him in as many movies as possible, knowing that he probably wouldn't be able to make any after a certain point. Um, so it kind of changes that that mindset a bit. But a lot of times I'll watch the trailer of a one of these Bruce Willis movies thinking like, boy, it looks like he's in this one a lot. And then and it's almost yeah. like a question of like, how do they edit the film in such a way that, or, or how do they take this concept here that I'm seeing in the trailer and actually turn it into a situation where he's not in the movie that much? Um, because a lot of times it seems like he's playing this really big part or, key role from the trailer that when i watch the movie it's like oh okay that's how they're able to do that 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 you know that character's not in you know 20 to 30 minutes of the film here you know at a time yeah i mean i think they have to be quite clever with how they do it in terms of writing and also uh where they're going to shoot i think there was i can't remember what one it was called because there's, there's been so many uh but it's kind of set in the woods with Jamie King, I think was in it. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Bruce Willis, basically he walks around the woods quite a lot and they've spread him out through the movie and he'll have a, he'll have a, you know, a few short dialogue scenes. So he's essentially pretty much entirely in a cabin or he's out kind of wandering in the woods. And I think, you know, they've probably filmed him in, you know, three or four days and then just very cleverly cut it through the whole film to sort of spread him out. Yeah, yeah, that that, that what is that survive the game? Is that the one? No, that doesn't have uh, James King in it. No, not survive the game. Um, I can't. There's been too many. I can't. I know. There's a, 
because I, I was like thinking, trying to think of it too. It yeah. Was, but like with the James King part, I probably should be looking up James King instead of Bruce Willis because I, I know I've seen that one. I've seen the trailer for it. Um, you know, I think the, the one that comes to mind for me was um, uh, Acts of Violence. I think yeah, Acts of Violence, where you know he plays a detective, and it seems like his detective character is going to be investigating this human trafficking ring from the trailer. So it just seems like okay, well, this has got to have a bunch of Bruce Willis tracking, you know, following up on leads and and you know kicking in doors and and all of that but no it's actually cole hauser that's doing all of that work and he's yeah. sort of you know uh liaison liaising with uh with with bruce Willis's character every once in a while yeah i mean i think there was one one of bruce's films where he spends most of it tied to a chair right yes um <laughs> Yeah. yeah, there was a, a Twitter joke about that. Somebody had posted, like, I think there was, like, four movies that he had come out in a year or something like that, where all of them featured him uh, tied to a chair for a, a good amount of the film. Yeah, I think some of the, the way that they kind of target that is because it's easy to film. Um, you can kind of, I know it must have been difficult, obviously, with his illness in terms of, you know, getting dialogue out, but... Yeah. Um, you know, I think the least sort of locations they can do where, the, you know, the least setups that they need and then they can kind of spread it quite thin. Yeah. Whereas I think maybe, you know, they could have maybe done. Well, not necessarily just with Bruce, but I mean, with a few other actors that keep doing this as well, where it, it might be better off to have like, you know, two or three scenes rather than four or five and then just do really good scenes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But. I guess what they the distributors tend to want is they if they've got someone in they want them at the beginning somewhere in the middle and then they want them back at the end. Yeah, that makes sense, right? Because if you if you're on Tubi, for example, right, if you drop yeah. off at some point, then um, then yeah, if you if you drop off in the middle, all of the ad revenue for the second half of the film go, is is missing. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, you'll pretty much always see you know like Willis or uh, Mel Gibson at the moment he seems to be doing this as well so you know they'll always be at the beginning of the film or the start you know within sort of five minutes yeah is that ever something from a, from a, a screenwriter standpoint do they ever is there ever a situation where they're like oh you know you you've written this character in in the screenplay but now we've got a name that we want to play it who's only going to be available for you know for this amount of time is it a matter of like having to rewrite it so it's fewer pages or something I don't know if that's something that they've ever come to you about or if that's something that that happens in the industry yeah I mean it definitely does happen I mean I've had it as well um I mean sometimes it becomes that yeah someone's available and it might not even necessarily be that you you change a role in the script you sometimes you'll add one you'll add a character in um so I mean I had that quite recently with uh, Danny Trejo oh yeah yeah so he yeah he became available uh for renegades um he and a couple of other actors so michael Perret and then tiny lister you know literally a few weeks really before he died wow um yeah he was good you know they were all good friends with uh, daniel zirilli the director uh and they were available it was kind of like just tailing off after covid and there was just like a brief window when everything was starting to be open again all the restrictions were lowered um so it was just a case of we need to film this in the states because the majority of the film was in the uk um 
So it's just like we need, you know, characters that can fill a couple, you know, a few scenes here and there. So it was, yeah, just a case of, you know, writing them in some interesting characters and uh, making use of that opportunity that came up. So, so, so like when you're doing that, so then you, when they say like, for example, they can't be in the UK, is that a matter of having to think like, okay, I've got to think of locations where like a bar or something like that, that can be yeah. shot anywhere. Yeah. So, I mean, what happened was fortunately one of the, one of the British actors that is in Renegades actually lives in the US. So he was over there at the time. Um, so we shot all the US stuff before the UK stuff. Um, and you know he was over there so he went round to film with Danny Trejo uh, and then by the time everything else was opened again and we can shoot the rest of it the main, the main bulk in the UK uh, he came over to shoot his part so in in the film itself it's as if um, Danny Trejo is somewhere in the UK that's yeah that's yeah. that kind of thing is always kind of really cool to to, to you know, because I think that's one of the things, right? When when we watch the movie, in in the you know when when you know sort of the finished product, we're kind of like, okay, yeah. How how do you you know like how do you get like a yeah like a Dan Trejo who um you know yeah you know, like yeah how does his character fit into a movie like that when he's maybe only going to be shooting for a short period of time and like you said he he doesn't even go to the UK for his scenes. Yeah, I think it's just that thing where you know. There is the business side of it, but also, you know, from my point of view as a fan, um, it's just really exciting for me to to write for these kind of actors. Um, and I think because I've seen so many of their, their films, I feel like I know how to get the best out of them. So that was always in our thinking that we didn't just want to get them in and get, you know, try and just crowd them in somewhere. We wanted to make the most of them as well which I yeah. don't think is always the case. I think sometimes it's just the case, just get them in and then, you know, we'll pump out a few pages or whatever. But I think certainly through, because I, you know, I've watched so many Treo films and Michael Perret, Tiny Lister, that I wanted to sort of, you know, give them a, an interesting scene to do. Yeah, that makes a lot. Cause I, I, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense. Just thinking about like having seen Nemesis, um, which I, I, as of us recording this, I haven't reviewed it yet on the site, but um, I, I felt like there's a there's a kind of a lot of like real sort of earnestness in making the film. Like, you know, that we're gonna make something that's really good and get it out there, and yeah. not have it be sort of, you know, I think the modern DTV world is a lot of like, let's just go out to some location in you know Alabama or or um, you know. Louisiana or something and and get as many you know pump out a few of these at a time and yeah. just sort of put some some elements together and keep it there and there is again like you said like there's the the part of it that you know getting the distribution it it, it helps to have names like Danny Trejo involved but then yeah splitting the difference where it's like okay yes we only got Danny Trejo for a short amount of time but let's give him something quality that when you know, someone like myself or, you, you know, in your case, you know, I know you're, you're a fan as well. Like you watch it and you say, yeah, I actually really like Danny Trejo's part here. He really added something to the film. Yeah. I mean, that's my preference when I, when I see um, actors in these kind of films. I mean, there's some actors that will always, they'll always, you know, deliver a good performance. You know, they're quite, you know, passionate about what they do, even if they're kind of getting quite prolific. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, Mel Gibson very rarely drops below a certain level. He's always quite into what he's doing. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, it's good to make the most of them. 
I don't think that's always the case with some of the, the studios, though. I think they just want sometimes they're thinking too much about, you know, what can we do that's going to be really kind of easy to shoot? And, you know, how can we get them to shoot very quickly and spread them out across the film? Um, so they're going for, you know, the quantity of minutes to how much time they've got to shoot it. Whereas maybe they should go for, you know, quality in the scenes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, obviously this is sort of like a sort of more extreme example, but thinking of, you know, Apocalypse Now, where Marlon Brando's barely in that movie, but the scenes that he's in are so powerful that he gets, you know, nominated for a supporting actor Oscar. And so there is yeah. a way to do these really short scenes. I mean, obviously, again, that's like kind of the most extreme example I think of that. <laughs> but but the idea is the same that, you know, if you've got Danny Trejo for yeah. a short amount of time. And I think that was one of the things when I saw on Instagram that Daniel Zerilli had joined Shogun Films, uh, that was one of the things that I was kind of excited about is that I know he he has a kind of a stable of actors that he works with, or act, actors, actresses that he works with that he can kind of draw from. And that was kind of my, my, you know, my thinking was like, oh, we're maybe we get some really big names. You know, Nemesis had really great names to begin with that that I I, I really liked and was excited about. So I was I was kind of really keen to see what was going to happen with that, and I'm that's why I'm really excited to see what what Renegades is going to be like. Yeah, yeah, same here. I think uh, the other producer, Jonathan Sothcott, who who runs um, Shogun with his wife, yeah. uh, you know, he's got a, a bit of a stable as well. So he's he knows loads of actors, so he connects it with you know people like Nick Moran, Bruce Payne. Um, so, I mean, obviously, just prior to Daniel kind of coming on board, they were in development on Nemesis. So, you know, Jonathan put that one together. Um, in terms of Renegades, you know, Daniel, he brings those kind of names like Danny and Michael Perret over as well. So it's um, it's quite exciting, the pair of them kind of working together to kind of bring all these names together. And... Renegades turned from being what was going to be a bit more of a sort of, I guess, British style action thriller. It became a bit more international um, with Daniel's involvement as well. So, yeah, he opened that up a bit more. And I think we made it a bit more expansive after that. Yeah, yeah, because that's one of the things I, I, I marked with, with, with Nemesis. I mean, I, I, I thought Nick Moran in particular, that was like one of my, my favorite performances of his. Um, there in Nemesis, but I mean, I think yeah. across the board, I mean, you know, his his his, his as uh, wife uh, Janine um, had a really great performance, and she doesn't have a huge CV on, um, on on IMDb, so it was like kind of a lot of really great performances there. But yeah, seeing him, Billy Murray, um, you know, of course, yeah, Bruce Payne is a favorite of mine. He's kind of one who um, had a huge piece in like starting uh, my my, yeah. my site off because um, there were these two women that had a site called Bruce's Angels. They were huge Bruce <laughs> Payne fans. And when I first yeah. started doing the blog, I was doing Bruce Payne films and they were like one of the first people who like started linking my site other places and things like that. So uh, when I heard that Bruce Payne was in it, I just had, and of course, my big thing with Bruce Payne is I don't like it when he plays Americans because I feel like that kind of, um, I mean, he does a great American accent, but I feel like it's yeah. not as much fun. Um, and so, yeah, seeing him in a real UK production uh, where he gets to play an, an English gangster, I thought was, was was much more fun. Yeah, and that's the, you know, and that's a good example of one of those where you get an actor in and you really make good use of him. Because, yeah. uh, you know, he's, it's obviously, he's, he's in pretty much one or two locations in the film. Um, and they shot this pretty they shot this sort of in the midst of lockdowns and things. So just as the restrictions were just easing enough that they could shoot, they went and shot the film. So it was kind of produced 
shot released all within the window of you know lockdown and covid which is quite impressive i think but yeah i mean they made really good use of you know bruce nick uh janine's really good in it as well um it's just yeah they did a really good job of that i, I was really impressed yeah yeah i was as, as well i mean i think the, the the home invasion movie for me i think it's kind of a hard thing to pull off because it's like yeah you know how much can you sort of do in that home invasion uh, window that doesn't feel like it's spinning its wheels. Like how how long can you take it before it it starts to get there? And I think you know the kind of splitting the difference the way they did, where the first half of it was more sort of building the story a bit. I, I thought was a, a good approach to that. That uh, that it, it wasn't just all the home invasion yeah. piece. But again, like the performances, I think really really anchored it too. Where you just had, uh, yeah, I mean Billy Murray was you know I I was loved seeing him and stuff anyway. So, but I, I think that was like his idea for the story. Um, I think according to the credits, um, so maybe that's part of the, you know why he was he was you know in it and kind of knew this character and really wanted to do this character. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he's really good friends with um, Jonathan. So, and Jonathan's a really big fan of Billy. So, he really wanted to kind of you know give him a role in something you know as the kind of leading man again uh you know because he he was almost sort of i wouldn't he, not necessarily retired but you know semi-retired he'd come and do the odd bit part here and there and he was quite happy to do that but i think you know he was attracted back to doing nemesis because it was you know something that he was kind of interested in and had a creative input in and then, you know, this kind of leading role where he'd be kind of front and centre as well. And, yeah, you know, he's really charismatic, so he really kind of holds the screen. Yeah, yeah, it was it was really great. I mean, you know, him and, I mean, of course, yeah, the Nick Moran and, um, uh, is it Lucy Arden? Is that, um, I think I have her, her name right. I yeah. Think. yeah, yeah, Lucy Arden, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think. Yeah, she hasn't done many films, but, I mean, she does a really good job in this as well. And then yeah. uh, they've had uh, Roger Moore's, granddaughter was in it as well yeah uh, yeah yeah amber moore and i thought yeah she was really good as well um yeah it might have been you know aside from a short film or two what her debut so um yeah she's really impressive in it because they have quite a, you know an interesting dynamic her and um lucy arden in the film without yeah. giving too much away no, <laughs> right, right, yeah. right, exactly but yeah but yeah, I think, you know, I think for someone who sees the names, you know, kind of on the tin in terms of like, you know, Nick Moran, you know, Frank Harper as well, who uh, I, I loved him as the dad and Bend It Like Beckham. That's what, kind of one of my, my favorite sports movies. And so, um, you know, seeing all those names there, Billy Murray, uh, Bruce Payne, you, you'd almost think like, OK, well, you know, Janine Sothcott or, um, you know, uh, Lucy Arden uh, or Amber Moore maybe aren't going to be as good. But actually, they, they hold their own really well, despite not having, you know, only, and I think, you know, they've done some feature films amongst them but for the most part it's a lot of a lot of short films that they've done and this is kind of yeah you know some of their newer stuff and the fact that they were able to hold their own so well with these other uh um, really big names i think just yeah sort of just kind of adds a touch to that film that i don't think you'd expect yeah. going in i think this is a key this was a key point that jonathan's often brought up that you know you can watch a film sometimes and like you say you've got the the names where you know what you're gonna get and you expect a certain level um, but then, you know, sometimes the cast can get filled out. It might just be that they're getting, you know, locals or they're just, you know, they're just filling the roles as quickly as possible because they're not necessarily as important um, when you're getting kind of, you know, eight, nine or tenth down in the cast list. They'll just, there's almost sometimes a 
just get anyone mentality. Um, but, you know, that's something that Jonathan, Jonathan's never wanted to do. He's always wanted to fill a role with someone who's going to not be a weak link in the film. So, yeah. And again, you know, everyone does a really good job in that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like, like, for example, um, with, you know, with his wife, Janine, I mean, she kind of plays that that gangster's wife in a way that's like a little bit more grit and edge to it than a lot of yeah. gangster's wife. And I think that really helped in a lot of areas of the film where, you know, like, I, you know, I, we in America, I think the, the most common gangster's wife that we think of is Carmela Soprano, you know, um, Edie Falco's. Uh, yeah. character and of course that character is very iconic and and you know it fills a certain role but it's like kind of that more that idea of the wife who knows what her husband does and just sort of puts it out of her mind because she gets this life that she really wants um whereas uh you know janine's sadie character in that movie is more like not necessarily a gangster too but she's not so naive to what her husband does and also yeah. kind of has that edge to herself that like exactly yeah yeah if things go bad she's you know and i, I think that you know, again like you said like you know i think you know casting her in that role really adds something to the film that like if they had just picked any you know woman you know actress who was looking to get into a film even if it was a bigger name perhaps you know it maybe doesn't do the same thing yeah, exactly. I mean, because, you know, she's also one of the heads of Shogun, so she has a very strong creative input in the films as well. And I think it was, you know, very important to her to have some, you know, a strong character that isn't just, you know, atypical of the kind of gangster's mole who's a bit naive and kind of, they either kind of go in with it subserviently or they don't really know what's going on. Um, whereas she's a lot more wily and, you know, very kind of strong-willed. But yeah, very loyal as well. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's kind of just an all around like, you know, the way that that movie, you know, it, it's kind of made. And I think, again, it's that, 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 you know, kind of what we talked about where it's like that wanting to make a movie that's not just like, let's just get something out there. Uh, I think for, for Shogun, for their first movie, um, you know, for uh, Southcott, you know, for that production company's first film, it really was kind of an announcement of like, yeah, we're looking to do something a little different than what's you're seeing from, you know, sort of independent direct-to-video uh, movies right now of a, of a similar type that it's like, no, we're, this isn't just getting something out there just to get it out there and just having names just to have names. And uh, which, yeah, that's what kind of makes me excited to see what, what, what uh, Renegades will be. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I'm very excited to see how this has turned out as well. Um, it's very much, it's a different style of film, really, because it's obviously... Uh, Nemesis still has that kind of British uh, sensibility running through it. I mean, Renegades does, you know, to a point, but also it's, I think it's more of an international kind of film as well. Yeah, um, yeah it's very much inspired by things like Canon, Orion, those kind of films back in the day, um, which is, you know, my, my era, Jonathan's era. So we're both kind of big fans of those kind of films. Yeah, that's I, I always kind of like that that era. I think the sort of two big errors that I think of for for films is that that canon error that kind of goes 80s into 90s, and then as that canon error starts to to I always think of it as a wave. That wave crests. You get the PM Entertainment wave. Um, yeah. Low budget action, and so it kind of leads to this like what 15 year period of movies um, as as action fans that are just just really fantastic stuff and. 
yeah, I think anytime we, you know, move, because I, I think what happens in the 2010s is we, we get a, away from a lot of that. It feels like at least a kind of mid to late 2000s into the 2010s, it was more about like, let's get this thing shot in a matter of days. Let's get the names that we can get in there as quickly as possible. And let's just put it out. And I think there were a lot of actors at the time that, that needed the money for that kind of thing. I think, you know, Seagal is one that um, I think, um, Line producer Benjamin Sachs was on uh, the Sean Malloy, uh, Dolph Lundgren podcast. I must break this podcast. Yeah. And he, he was talking about how, you know, Seagal's people would come to him and say, we need another movie. And sometimes it would be like, you know, three times in a year. And he's like, you know, you're, you're starting to hit a point of diminishing returns. We can only do so much here with, with these kinds of movies and just keep putting out another, you know, whatever the character name is, Jonathan Cold or, you know, um, you know <laughs> that, that, that kind of, that, yeah. you know. Uh, and, and, you know, he, but it was kind of that thing where it was like, okay, that the actor is driving it to some extent saying like, I, I need another thing. I need something out there. Cause I've got this bill to pay or this kind of thing. Um, it almost feels like it's turning back that like, you know, now we're getting to point, I mean, I think, you know, a movie like Avengement was, it was a real big sig signal that like, yeah, there's, there's a way to do this kind of movie that doesn't have to be you know, yes, it's, it's still on a budget. There's still the constraints that you have in making the movie, but yet it can still be done with a lot of heart. And, and it just, it comes through. I think Nemesis is another example where you make a movie with a lot of heart. It, it comes through in the finished product. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, there was a time where they were spending quite a lot of money on, you know, straight to video films. You know, you'd see Van Damme and Seagal, you know, at the start of their kind of DTV career, you know, the budgets were still around sort of 15, 20 million dollars. And they were earning like a significant chunk of that. Yeah. Um, I think obviously the budgets started shrinking maybe 15 years ago. Uh, but, the, you know, the actors are still getting paid, you know, quite a big chunk. So the chunk of, you know, what the cast is getting is kind of eating more and more into the, the shooting budget. And it, often it has shown. I think also because of that, you know, shooting schedules have gone down from maybe 30 days which they used to consider quite tight uh down to you know two weeks sometimes i mean i've had features that these are lower budget horror features of but they've been shot for you know around seven eight days yeah that's a and and i think one of the things that benjamin Sachs was talking about in there is that like yeah if you're doing you know whatever the shooting day is if it's like a uh, you know, a 12 hour shooting day, that's this, the shooting piece, right? It's the, the, the hours on either end of it where the crew is sort of setting up and, and packing up everything that really can make the, the really long days on the crew. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think it's, um, it's just difficult to find that balance of being able to do things where you can be creative and you can show your kind of strengths as a director, say, when you've got you know, two or three weeks to shoot a film. I mean, some directors are kind of, they're tuned to that now and they're good at doing that. So, you know, like Jesse Johnson will always deliver you something solid at the very least. Because um, he's kind of got it down to a fine art. Even You know, I'm sure he'd rather have, you know, five weeks than three weeks to shoot a film, but, you know, he'll still get something done. And, uh, you know, he'll have it well put together, well constructed. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, I mean, I think, you know, some certain, you know, auteurs are really like in demand now. You think of like a, a Fred Olin Ray, it's like, um, you know, here in the U.S., there's this, this huge industry of Christmas movies that like 
um, some of like the, <laughs> the the channels like the Hallmark Channel or whatever yeah. do, and and it's like they're turning to to names like Fred Olin Ray or David Dakota because they know these these the, these directors can get these things out in a, in a really quick shooting schedule. Yeah, and it's like, well, okay, you know, yeah, sure, they did, you know. Uh, you know these low budget horror films or these sort of like skinamax movies or whatever it was that they yeah. they're used to doing but hey why don't we just turn that that skill onto you know these these christmas movies or whatever and so that's what you get you get like you know there's like a yeah there's like five or six fred olin ray christmas movies out there that i i was watching with my wife and it was kind of funny to be like yeah this guy does like, you know <laughs> whatever you know the carnosaur you know whatever movie you know that he's you know that, that fred olin ray you know um, and, 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 and sometimes you can see touches of those directors in those movies, which is always kind of funny to see too. But, but yeah, it's that idea of like, can you get a director who can turn it around quickly? Um, you know, we, we yeah. always joke that Keone Waxman is the, uh, the Seagal whisperer. Cause it seems like he can, um, put together a, a Seagal movie, the way Seagal wants a movie made. Um, he just sort of knows how to make that movie the way, you know, with all the bells and whistles that Seagal expects from a Seagal movie. Uh, he just seems to be able to put that together. Yeah, I think, you know, with a lot of these experienced directors as well, they've, um, you know, they've, they're used to doing it in tight schedules, but they've also, they've adapted from coming from shooting on film to shooting on digital. Yeah. And obviously with shooting on film, you're almost even more constrained by time because it's, there's more set up, there's more switching around because you're, you're basically limited to your real length and digital, you can kind of leave it running to an extent. So, you know, they could do it back then, you know, two or three weeks on a tight schedule shooting on film. So, you know, almost it's almost like a cakewalk to do it, you know, with the modern, you know, technology and shooting on digital. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing with digital because I think it, to some extent it's it's democratized filmmaking. I think right for for low budget indie films yeah. like like well, you know the the film that you have that we'll be talking about in a bit here when darkness falls that you know you can you don't need the the, the expensive equipment that you did with with film before but also too I think from an an editing standpoint you know if the lighting is different on a different day it's easier to touch that up later um, in 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 the editing room whereas with film it's like it's yeah it's it's kind of you know, you've, you've got to make sure that you're, you're filming it at the right time of day every time. Uh, and so in a way, it's democratized it a bit. But I think, too, it's it's uh, it, it, it. I don't want to, what to say like that. It, not that it's made it um, like that for directors, they can be lazier necessarily. I don't think that's the right term. But I think from a studio standpoint, they probably expect like quicker in certain yeah. products because of that. I think so. And it's, you know, the, it's the shoot itself. And then the, there's usually quick turnarounds on post-production as well. So, you know, you tend to see a lot of films maybe that because they've got, you know, top of the line digital camera that can film nicely in low light, they, you know, a lot of them will just use natural light or, you know, not too much on in terms of the lighting. Um not to say it's lazy or cutting corners. Sometimes it's just the fact that you've got no time to shoot. So right. you have to do what you have to do. But you do see a lot of films that come out and they've got this kind of look like it's just been given a basic LUT or a very basic grade. Um, it's quite, not like, not that it's cutting corners, but maybe they, you know, you don't have time to really put your stamp on as a, you know, maybe a DP or a grader where you know maybe 10 even 10 years ago 15 years ago you might have had the benefit of an extra week to do this kind of thing but some of the delivery turnarounds are quite quick 
even you know you've shot the film and then you deliver it to the distributor and you have to deliver it within a certain window and then by that point you know they could just sit on it for 18 months anyway so you know you think why the rush but it's just it's just the business really sometimes you you don't get the time you need to make it look as good as you can yeah and that's like the, the studio expectation is sort of what drives a lot of it or not I'm sorry the distributor or studio expectations what drives it where it's like yeah from a editor director you know or um you know the dp standpoint of like okay i'd maybe want to play with these colors a bit or i'd maybe want to you know yeah frame this differently or something like that and i think sometimes you know we'll I'll see sometimes with directors and in, in you know maybe it's a gall movie or something like that or you know um direct uh, dps in those movies where there'll be a certain shot here or there that's almost like them sort of just being able to indulge themselves just a little bit you know or yes yeah. an overhead shot of coffee cups on a on a, uh, <laughs> a diner table or something like that where it's just like just give me something just to make me feel better about my craft and then yes i'll do the rest yeah. of it the way seagal wants it or, or you know whoever it is but i think you know when they first started with digital cameras and there was all these different things he could do on them you could play with the, you know, the, the shutter speeds and things like that. And then with the editors, when they start getting avid and things like that, the, the editing software is so kind of, um, there's so many things you can do on it. It's almost like an editor now, on, you know, on some occasions with some of these films that they want to kind of make their, their mark. Whereas an editor, really, if you don't notice the editor, then they've done a great job. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes I think... Um, if you think of that infamous, do you know the infamous scene in Taken 3 where there's 14 cuts of him climbing over a fence in like 10 seconds, right. something like that? <laughs> uh, you know, you notice that because it's very intrusive. Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes, you know, in post, they want to be a bit intrusive at times. But, um, you know, it is what it is, really. Some, you know, this certain things that come in and out of fashion like the born style has kind of gone out of fashion again yeah um yeah so it's just an interesting thing sometimes you know you can see that people haven't had enough time sometimes you can see that they're trying too hard to kind of make their kind of role noticed yeah yeah i mean the born thing it is it's almost like the the liam neeson taken films and some of the other action films that he did you know, after that, it's almost sort of taking the the born model to this like extreme conclusion that you know that you could have someone. I mean, I mean, I remember thinking, you know, and and with Death Wish Five with with Bronson, you know, I would always refer to that as sort of like the the maybe the the, the oldest uh, an action hero can be. You know, I think he's you know he's in his early seventies yeah. when he makes that, and you think like, okay, you, you know, when an acting star gets into that age, it's like, okay, that's that's a point where maybe it's it's too old. But actually, no. Now with the editing that they have in there, you know, you could see uh, an actor into their seventies still playing an action role if it's edited properly, which in a way I think kind of hurts some of the the younger guys. I mean, I, you know, Scott Atkins isn't that young uh, but he's you know younger compared to a lot of the other stars who were born in the 50s and 60s but there's a sense that like some of these guys i mean yes you get like a van damme or a, a gary daniels who have been staying you know really great shape and can still perform a lot of the scenes despite being older but i think a lot of names you can keep them working for longer and i think that's going to make it harder maybe for younger action stars that are that are coming up to to get their parts because it's like well do I want to see a, a Matt Mullins or somebody like that on the tin when 
I can do, you know, it, you just give me another Don the Dragon Wilson film and it, you know, or whatever, you know, I mean, Don the Dragon Wilson is so good, but, you know, I think, you know, like Seagal, for example, does a lot of those quick edits um, in his films. And yeah. the distributor might say, yeah, instead of trying to introduce the world to someone like a Matt Mullins or somebody else, you know, I mean, even Matt Mullins isn't that young. I think he's born in 1980. So even he's in his 40s now. But, um, you know, a lot of these younger stars that you're like, oh, I can't wait to see what they have to do. You know, Eco Wise, maybe it's another example um, that it's harder now because with that that Liam Neeson, you know, with with what's been done with Liam Neeson, there's a sense of like, well, these names that were action stars in the past, we can just do that with them and 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 make action films with them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think in the even in the sort of the high end of like A movies and all the kind of Marvel and Disney stuff, you know, there's very few kind of star names now. Um, like the, the idea of the movie stars kind of died out a little bit because I think concepts and you know franchises have almost taken over. Yeah. Um, so you're not seeing quite as many you know young younger actors say drifting down into kind of the video world, um, and you're certainly not seeing too many that you know come in and make their mark because obviously you know most of the fans watching straight to video action films you know tend to be of a certain age and they grew up with you know van damme and seagal and everyone so they're there you know for their old heroes you know scott adkins is probably the last kind of new wave guy who really made a, a name for himself um and he did that you know by being exceptional basically so you know you have to do something really amazing to kind of stand out and sometimes that's difficult when the films can't always back you up yeah, right. Because I think in Adkins's case, you know, he paired with two really great dire action directors, and you know, yeah. Jesse V. Johnson and then Isaac Florentine, and they both have kind of used him as their muse in a way, uh, where they just, you know, put. I mean, I mean, Jesse V. Johnson. I think the, his two most recent films didn't have Adkins in them, so he's he's kind of moved away. But I think um, Florentine. I think he's kind of he doesn't really go too long without having Adkins in a movie, and uh, and I think that's that's been big because I think. You know, the, those are some of the best direct-to-video action films that we've seen in a while. It's just, you know, but you know, Adkins also has some duds in there too, where you know the the person he is working with doesn't really quite know how to use him properly, or the the movie yeah. might just be just a little bit off in certain ways. Uh, so, I mean, with him, he just does so many movies that I think you know, you never you wonder if maybe there is a law of diminishing returns. But by the same token, you know, he's, he's got to get paid somehow. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think even when he's done his kind of, you know, the slightly not quite so magnificent ones, let's say, um, you know, he he hasn't hit as much of a low as, you know, some of his more kind of senior contemporaries. So, I mean, some of the worst <clears throat> Seagal ones, yeah. you know, have been really bad. But I think, you know, Scott Adkins at his worst is still, you know, at least watchable, I think. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, he'll still deliver, you know, what he he knows the fans expect. So there'll still be, you know, a certain level to the action, even if, you know, he's being slightly let down by the way it's shot or cut. Um, you know, he has experimented a few times. There was that, was it Max? Um, oh, Max Cloud. Yeah, Max Cloud. I mean, that was a little bit of a misfire, but that, you can see that he's probably done that because it's a bit different, a bit kind of, unexpected so maybe he's kind of done that as a sort of experiment which didn't quite come off um yeah i always think too with max cloud I, I would imagine from the actor's standpoint 
you know, seeing that movie, like like being in the film, it probably seemed like it was going to come off better than maybe it did in the kind of the final product. Because I think for me, when I watched that, the final product, the, the biggest issue was kind of the whole being in a video game thing that, you know, we, we've seen enough that it just kind of felt like that part of it. But I think from, yeah, like you said, from his standpoint, he probably looked at that and thought, this is a fun role for me to play um, that's different from what I'm used to doing. And I bet while they were making it, it probably felt like it was going to be more, you know, kind of more unique and, and, and um, something a little bit better, you know, something kind of more inspired than, than uh, what ended up happening, you know, what the final product ended up being. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine, yeah. Perfect. Well, yeah, I know we, we've kind of uh, dug in a little bit more with some of the stuff that I think maybe <laughs> I initially planned on us doing towards the end, but why don't we get into to when darkness falls? Because I think that's, uh, um, you know, and, and actually I think it, there, there's some dovetailing um, with some of the things we've talked about here with, with some of the things with this film, um, you know, in terms of the, the shooting um, and, and, and those things. So why don't I just, I'll kind of do a kind of a brief synopsis and um, just a full disclosure for everybody listening. Usually I'll say, um, Hey, there's going to be spoilers uh, turn off the podcast and watch the movie. But in this case, we're not going to give away the spoilers because we're kind of trying to, you know, talk about the film, kind of get the, the word out about it. So I'm going to take the synopsis to a point and then we'll, we'll dig in from there. Um, the, the basic premise is that we've got two American hikers. Um, we have Jess and Andrea played by Michaela, uh, Michaela Longden and um, Emma O'Hara. They're trekking through the Highlands of Scotland. I'm sort of on a, on a trip that um, Andrea has, has planned and, and, and wanted to take uh, Jess along with. At the same time, we've got two criminals. We've got uh, Nate, who's played by Nathan Shepka, the, the uh, director of the film, and um, Tommy, who's played by Craig McEwen. They're sort of going through the Highlands of Scotland, sort of trying to find rich people who are, you know, might have uh, valuables in their house because they're not used to sort of criminals coming through there. They're sort of trying to exploit the area. At the same time, they're finding women that they kind of want to, you know, hook up with or whatever, and they're drugging them and, and raping them at the same time. So they're sort of doing both things. Um, they're just sort of all around bad criminals. And we get to a point where Jess and Andrea meet Nate and Tommy at a bar. Andrea is more of the, uh, how do we say, like the more adventurous type. And she's kind of interested yeah. in hooking up with these guys. Uh, she jokes about trying to get free beers off of them. So she almost wants to exploit them. Whereas Jess doesn't want anything to do with it. They separate. And then when Jess comes back, Andrea is missing. And that's where, where sort of the, the story starts to sort of take its twists and turns. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's kind of where I like to leave it when I sort of... Um talk about the film because you know i liked people to sort of discover it um discover the twists and turns along the way yeah and i i think one thing that i really liked about this movie is the, sort of the duality of the beauty of the highlands of scotland and even just the beauty of like the small villages that they encounter in there combined with this sense of danger that's also in yeah. that remoteness um and um and so is that something too when you were thinking of the story and i it looks like i think um it said that the director nathan shepka had the story idea but then you wrote the screenplay uh yes yeah, so, i mean i've known nathan for just over 10 years now so we kind of met on we met basically on the rounds doing on uh, a few different sort of straight to video action forums so we kind of crossed up our paths over like Segal, Dolph and Van Damme. Uh, and then we sort of connected. 
and we're both into sort of filmmaking we're into the same kind of films um and you know we've long kind of wanted to make a film together and particularly kind of set in scotland to make use of those locations uh so what it was was we did have one kind of idea that we'd been working on uh, which was a bit more like a kind of hills have eyes kind of thing mm. um but we we sort of established that we needed a bit more budget to kind of make that happen the way we wanted it to um because it's a kind of idea that we want to do and we want to kind of retain control and not kind of sell it short um so we decided to do something a bit more stripped back and a bit more simple but still making use of those locations um because nathan is up in scotland anyway so he lives in glasgow and um he's made he's made a feature already before this um that's out in the us and is out in the uk shortly called holiday monday oh yes yeah, I saw that. yeah yeah so he's um you know He's he's a bit of a multitasker, so he directed it, produced it, starred in it, and uh, edited it as well. Uh, we kind of like the same films as well, so we both kind of like old Hitchcockian thrillers, and we kind of had this idea that we wanted to do something based on someone sort of disappearing early in the film, you know, something along the lines of breakdown, and the vanishing, things like that. Um, so that was kind of like our starting point. So we kind of spitballed on the story a bit. And uh, once we kind of fleshed out the, the beats that we wanted, I went into the script and then worked from there. Yeah, you know, one kind of twist on the, the missing, you know, uh, woman uh, uh, paradigm that, that I really liked here too, was that you have, you, you, you kind of the standard uh, piece where it's the two women and one is more, uh, how do I say, more responsible, um, you know, more sort of, yeah. uh, it, it, but at the same time, we've got this other pair, the, the criminals, where it's almost a similar uh, uh, vibe, right, where it's the one who's more responsible and the one who is kind of more willing to take chances and, and you know, um, and Nathan Shevka, the, the, the director, plays that, the, the one who's more willing to take chances. And um, it, it's kind of interesting to see that dynamic in the film uh, where it's almost like, you know, because obviously, you know, there's going to be all these this sort of the, these machinations that happen around uh, Andrea disappearing. But it, it's kind of that idea that, like, which of the two more responsible ones is going to win out um, for the two parties? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think we, you know, we wanted that duality between the two kind of pairings. Um, and then, you know, you've got another character in there who will sort of come into play as well. Uh, yeah, but the main thing is we wanted to kind of get to this. We want, we kind of like slow burning thrillers. So we wanted it to kind of build up nicely, you know, throughout until it kind of gets, you know, a bit more kind of action based, a bit more horror towards the end. Um, you know, and a few twists and turns along the way. So that was in our thinking and also, you know, in the back of our mind as well, we have to think about things like, um, you know, what we can do within a certain amount of time and, you know, budget as well. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think the, the way that the, uh, from a, a shooting standpoint, the way that you're able to lean on the, the, that beautiful area, the, the, the Scottish Highlands there, I mean, I, 
a really great drone shots kind of of the overheads that I thought were really nice. But I think even just like from a color standpoint, it was great. But, you know, another piece that I really like, too, is that a lot of times with these kinds of movies, it's the the duality of the space, right, is sort of like, okay, yeah. it's beautiful during the day, but it's also remote and it's haunted. And kind of like, you know, me growing up in Maine, Stephen King did a lot, does a lot of that, where it's like, you know, you drive through an area during the day that looks really nice, but when you're driving there at night, you're just like hoping your car doesn't break down, you know, like that. Um, <laughs> and, and Stephen King always yeah. takes it to that point where you get the flat tire on the street that has no lights and, you know, oh, you've got to knock on that door that you've passed, you know, when you're driving. Um, what if you had to knock on that door? What would be behind that door? What, what I liked about this, though, was that, yes, the Scottish Highlands had that kind of duality to it, but the actual danger is from two outsiders who just happen to be in the, the location at the same time. Yeah, I mean, what we wanted to do was, you know, we have these wide open spaces, so we wanted it to look nice and wide. Um, and we, you know, we wanted it to have that feeling that the the more she goes on and the more she's kind of searching for Andrea and discovering each new thing, the more, you know, as wide and expansive as it is, there's a sense of kind of um, claustrophobia as well, you know, even despite these big spaces that, she feels really kind of, um, you know, uncomfortable and out of her element because she really doesn't know who to trust and, you know, you know where to go. Yeah, I think that's really where the title comes into play for me, right? Is that the, the highlands are big and beautiful during the day when you can see everything. But when it's dark, now it's, it's much more, like you said, claustrophobic that now... Yeah. Where can you go? What can you do when you don't have, you know, and, and what's interesting about um, about, you know, Andrea's character, of course, is that she's hiking. So it's not like she can just hop in a car and go somewhere or that, you know, that there's a train to hop on or anything like that. She's she's really stuck. And then, of course, when it's really dark like that, she's kind of, you know, where she can go and what she can do is, is much more limited. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, what was interesting is, you know, this was being, you know, being a very low budget film. You know, it's not like they would have the benefit to, uh, you know, close off streets and, you know, get exclusive access to sort of certain areas outside. I mean, we can, you know, we could rent certain locations indoors, like the pub location. But in terms of one of the villages that they filmed at, I mean, I wasn't at the shoot, unfortunately, because of COVID. Uh, but when they were shooting, you know, you barely saw anyone. There was yeah. these small villages and, you know, they were shooting during the day. I, they would barely see a person so they didn't you know they barely had to worry about someone appearing in the shot that they didn't really want but I think you know that kind of sense that you know something happened out there during the shoot and they you know burst a tire or something and you know lost a phone signal they might have struggled to get you know get some help or it would have been like hours on end but you know I think it the locations really have that kind of sense of authenticity where you know, a lot of times in low-budget films, you barely see anyone in the films, but it's almost because, because the, you know, it's low-budget and they've had to film away from where you would see people and it doesn't quite sit right. Yeah. You know, you feel like, you know, you know, in a bigger film, there would be extras over there, there would be extras over there. You know, if you're filming at a bar, you'd have more extras in the corner. Whereas this, you know, because you don't see anyone, it you know, it fits the movie and that was another important aspect that we wanted we wanted to kind of make use of the location but make it seem logical that you know you barely see anyone but the main characters 
Yeah, and it it does fit. Like for example, when they go to the bar um, or when they go to the pub, there, I think it it makes a lot of sense that it it you know has that um, you know maybe like the the Hitchcocking element of the two groups being brought together there that. It, when you watch that bar, it makes sense that there's nobody else there. Um, one, of course, they're yeah. going there earlier in the day, which that that's one piece of it. Um, I also like the barman himself as this, you know, again, sort of adding to this level of, of <laughs> sort of sinisterism or, you know, sort of, you know, um, unwelcomeness, right? I mean, it, I would, yeah. you know, where I grew up in Maine, that's a common thing, too, that if you go to a local area, if they think you're a tourist, if they think you're out of town, they're not going to treat you that well. And, of course, yeah, seeing two women hikers come through from America, um, you know, they're just, the, the bartender's just going to be like, you know, who do, who do they think they are in here? You know, just, yeah, take your beers and go, you know, or whatever. And um, it, it, so, it, and of course, that, that adds to it now that when, when Andrea goes missing, now, you know, we, we can look at it as like, you know, uh, Jess has to go back into that environment uh, when she already wasn't welcome there to begin with. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, she, you know, she needs help and she needs kind of assistance, but she doesn't really get that. So, you know, she kind of, she's left to her own devices, you know, from a certain point onwards. And, you know, she has to kind of take the initiative. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she's going into this kind of unknown and then, you know, increasingly, obviously, being a film that's going to drift into a little bit of kind of thrills and horror, there's going to be, you know, things happening, but she's, uh, she has to find this kind of inner strength the more the film goes on. Yeah. And, and, and we, one piece that I did like kind of early on in the story is that, you know, we get a sense of like how Jess and Andrea know each other. Right. And that really, it was that Andrea was having trouble in high school uh, graduating and, and Jess just sort of goes out of her way to help her. For that um and so there is that sense of like just being someone who is responsible um who is someone who kind of takes care of business or, you know kind of always has things together but that also that she'd be someone who would help who would, who would care about somebody else to that yeah. degree and um, i think that's a really great stage setting so that when 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 this all happens with jess sort of the 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 uh path that that Jess goes down, it, it all feels organic. It, it, it doesn't feel like there's something that happens here that we wouldn't expect her to do, or this is, you know, she's doing something here that doesn't work. And I think that's yeah. always like the toughest thing when you think of it from the Hitchcockian standpoint that, you know, you think of like North by Northwest or something where it's like, you know, what are we doing? You know, Cary Grant is this normal guy who's just thrown into this, this crazy circumstance here. And to, to make it seem like it's realistic that they would go through all these phases that, you know, you end with him on, um, Mount Rushmore, um, you know, how, you know, it, it's got to all work to get to those different places. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was, you know, very much in the forefront of our mind that, you know, we wanted to, to kind of feel incremental and kind of build up to the, to the ending. And, you know, we needed to, we needed to kind of deliver certain moments. So, you know, if characters do kind of meet their, their end, so to speak, that it's going to be something that's impactful and kind of, you know really stand out but yeah in terms of like the, the story arc we wanted it to kind of feel feel interesting and you know make it work 
Yeah, yeah, and I, I think it, it, it definitely delivers on that. I think that's one of the things for me, because again, you know, this isn't always my kind of movie. Um, you know, I generally don't don't watch th this sort of movie. So, I, you know, watching it here, I was like, you know, I was, I was kind of excited to see, you know, the, the twists and turns. And I was, I think that was the thing that I really liked about it, is that for someone like myself who generally doesn't watch a movie like this, to have been entertained throughout and think like, okay, yeah, I, I, I like all of the parts that I'm seeing here, I thought was really good. And I think it's probably a big thing because, you know, I think for people seeing this and maybe thinking like, okay, I've, I've seen the, the missing woman, you know, and having to find the missing, you know, the, the, there's like the missing woman and of course the other character who's isolated as a result and has to sort of unravel things. Um, this one does some things that are different from, from that, that usual paradigm. Yeah, I mean, you know, we wanted to try and, you know, it's kind of an old established sort of uh, idea. So we wanted to kind of have our own stamp on it. So that that was quite important to us that we do something that was a little bit, I guess, unexpected. And we were sort of hoping to lead the audience one way and then, you know, pull a about turn on the move. You know, it's just about being clever, but also playing fair as well. We didn't want to sort of start pulling things out of our backside, really, that <laughs> made no sense to, you know, some some sort of thrillers and twists and turns that, you know, you'll watch a film and it's come too much by surprise or it feels like it hasn't left you enough nuggets that you can discover that yourself. So I think we need to leave some kind of trail um, to play the game fair, really, rather than, you know, pulling something out of the blue. So. That was something we considered and you know we just wanted to make something that would yeah have these different layers and it would just increase intention until the end yeah yeah which it, i think it, it definitely delivers on that and um i, I think w one of the interesting parts was was nate um it was, was nathan shepka playing the that you know sort of the, the baddie of, of nate um is that something that you know when you were going into to writing this that that was the idea that he would play this part and that would be you know he, that would be his role for this yeah so i mean yeah nathan is as well as sort of being a director and a producer he's very interested in acting as well so we knew from the beginning that he would be in the film and also that he would probably be an antagonist um uh, I don't. I don't mean just because he's an antagonist in real life. He's a right. he's a Roman. <laughs> right. He has his moments, but he's all right. right. Um, but yeah, so you know, we kind of knew the kind of role he was going to uh, play, um, and you know, he's quite good at playing villains. So you know, I wrote to his strengths really, and we wanted it to be kind of you know have some interesting turns in the film where. You know, there's unlikely kind of allegiances and things like that. So we wanted to add a bit of complexity to it as well. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is the kind of baddie that he plays that, yeah, if you're like casting for that baddie, right, I think, you know, I think some some actors, I think they would just want to, you know, get a, get a part in a film. But I think from a, a director standpoint and, you know, um, him having, you know, being uh, one of the producers that, it's almost like in a way you can almost take one for the team as well to be like, okay, this person is, is, I mean, it's, it's not a good person, right. Who is no. looking to rob, you know, poor older, or not poor, but um, uh, uh, unsuspecting older people just sort of living out their lives in the, in the, in the highlands of Scotland, um, but also drugging and, and raping women, you know, that that's, that's part of his MO as well. Uh, that's not a good person. Like, you know, the, the, 
Tommy character, who's with him, Craig McEwen's character, there's a sense in his mind that there's a part of him that doesn't like that that Nate is doing these things, um, that he he would prefer that, you know, okay, let's just do whatever robberies we're going to do and let's just get out of here. Um, let's not be targeting women and doing this other piece of it. Um, but then, of course, there's, there's the other part of it where I think, and again, and with that duality between Tommy being the responsible one and Jess being the responsible one amongst the women, that Tommy lets his sort of inner demons win over in that, that he's like, he doesn't like that, that Nate is doing this, but by the same yeah. token, he likes too that he gets his, you know, his, his you know, I guess his, his rocks off for enjoyment out of it. You know, like his, his, he, he can't, uh, I guess, resist the temptation of what Nate's doing. Um, whereas in Jess's case, she's able to say, no, you know what? Um, just hanging around these two guys and trying to get them to buy us drinks or whatever is not something that I want to do. So I'm going to get out of here. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, he's, you know, Tommy's quite weak willed in the film. So he doesn't really kind of have that wherewithal to kind of, you know, go against Nate. And yeah. he's, you know, he, he likes the benefits of, you know, what they're doing in terms of, you know, robbing people. And he kind of, as much as he's growing sort of reluctant to do the other side of it, um, he still, he still can't sort of, you know, put that to the side and he can't really stop doing that. So, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a moral aspect to the film as well. Um, you know, like I guess there's a kind of classic Hollywood um, kind of notion that you know the the moral characters in the film will win through. Yeah. In the end, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I think the other thing too, there's a kind of a there's a part at one point where where Nate's character confesses that you know um, that at a certain plot point. Um, had things worked out differently, he probably would have listened to Tommy, you know, telling him that they shouldn't do something. And there's a sense when I when you hear that of like, well, that's probably not really what happened, right? That that um, you know, that's Nate, you know, just you know, sort of saying that. But you can't imagine a scenario where Nate would have convinced, or sorry, Tommy would have convinced Nate to not do anything in in, in, a, in a certain circumstance. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, you got that kind of side of it where. Um, you know, Tommy gets pushed around a bit and uh, he kind of, in, in the end, he does what he's told, but he kind of, he still, he still kind of, you know, he gets his end away. So he, you know, he's, as much as he might complain, he still, he still joins in. Um, and then, you know, in terms of, yeah, Jess, she kind of, she's got that moral, that moral side to her that, you know, that supersedes her fear. So, you know, she finds this strength throughout the film to, you know, to keep going. Um, and, you know, she she is the kind of moral backbone of the film and the strongest character in the film. Yeah, and, and I really liked uh, M- Michaela Longan's performance there. Now, now, just to be clear, she's actually from the UK originally, right? She's not from America. Uh, no, yeah, she's from the UK. Yeah, yeah, that's um, what I did. Yeah. Yeah, I thought so. I didn't think either of them were, were Americans, but yeah, I mean, there are a couple of, of tells. Um, there's a point where they're they're near the water and they they talk about it being ten degrees out. And um, just knowing for myself as an American who who works with um colleagues kind of all over the world, and I'm still trying to, you know, learn the difference between Celsius and and Fahrenheit. Um, I definitely know that if I was on one trip to <laughs> to the UK, I wouldn't um, I, you know, ten degrees. Um, I I wouldn't you know 
I, I wouldn't be thinking in those terms. And 10 degrees in America is much colder, um, as you can imagine, than it is in in uh, in, in Celsius. But um, but no, but like the, um, I I think her character, at least in the sense of like, I mean, there, there isn't much about her that I think the American aspect is it is more of just like a way to make this be an even more foreign land uh, for them, which I think really works there. But I also think the organic progression in the story of what Jess's character goes through, I think Michaela Longden's character, and of course, you know, we're thinking in terms of shooting this piece, like, you know, where all of us being shot at a sequence from what we see, but it really feels like her character kind of matches that progression that, that you, you, we kind of organically move her through these steps that um, I, I thought she did a really great job with that part of it. Yeah, no, I mean, we were really happy with Michaela. We were happy with the whole cast. Um, Generally, when I'm making my kind of low-budget horror films, when I'm writing them, I sort of hand the script off and that's it. That's my job done. Um, but obviously, you know, working quite closely with Nathan, although I wasn't as involved production-wise as I might have liked to be, just due to time and COVID and being busy on other things, I was still um, involved in the casting. So, you know, we usually Nathan has like a core team of people he knows and he can call upon. And, you know, occasionally he'll, you know, cast locally from up in Scotland. But we kind of wanted to broaden the search a bit. So um, we worked quite closely to cast uh, Michaela, Emma, and uh, a character that Ben Brinnigan plays in the film as well, um, because they're, they're key roles. But, I mean, Michaela in particular, because she spends quite, you know, large parts of the film where she's basically holding the film herself, um, so we needed someone who could, you know, you know, keep you know, engaged in the film when it's basically one person on the screen. And I think, yeah, she does a really good job. As she's on kind of like the verge of a breakout at the moment. She's had a few, she's been part of a few popular UK horror films um, that have come out recently. Uh, one called Book of Monsters and then the other one was called Jack in the Box 2. Oh, I saw uh, that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, they've done really well. And, you know, she's kind of on the periphery of breaking out at the moment. So we've kind of got her at a good time. Um, but, yeah, she's 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 fantastic in the film. And yeah. really kind of, yeah, make, yeah, she really kind of keeps you engaged in it. And, uh, you know, re you really kind of feel her journey by the end of it. Yeah. And I think that's a I, I imagine that was probably a, a difficult piece, too, where, um, you know, once the the we get to that, that midpoint where the twist happens and there's, there's other, there's moving parts, you know, going on. Yeah. Um, sort of that, that from a writing standpoint, making sure you don't lose her as well, I guess, right. That you've got to always sort of make sure we're coming back to her with everything else that's happening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that's very, that was very much in the front of my mind when I was writing it. And uh, from a casting point of view, we just really, you know, you need the right person in the right role. Um, and I think that's what I enjoyed in terms of being part of the casting process was being able to kind of, you know, have a say in who gets the role um, because then I can kind of, you know, match the, so, you know, matching Michaela to what I had written. Yeah. I think, you know, in terms of what she was, you know, giving with her audition pieces and her showreels, uh, it really matched kind of the sensibilities that I wanted in the character. So 
you know, it's it was nice to have that that kind of say in the film on who would be cast in it. And again, the others that we cast as well, Emma's really fantastic in the film as well, and Ben too. And then the you know the rest of the cast, Nathan kind of knew, and obviously he knows what he can do, and I know as well. So we kind of know how to play his character. Yeah, I noticed that in the credits that you had a, a, an additional casting credit. So, so this was sort of where that came in that you were you 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 had a say in 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 picking uh, Michaela for the Jess character and, and and some of those aspects. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, we kind of opened out the casting because we we felt that we needed to really get the kind of the the two ladies in particular. We really needed to get right in terms of casting. Um, and you know we were quite set on having American characters because we thought we thought the fish out of water aspect would really add to it as well. Um, you know, it might have been maybe easier to cast English actors going up to Scotland, but they, it wouldn't have felt quite so alien. Yeah. You know, those landscapes and those because you know up in the Highlands of Scotland, it's very similar to a lot of. Um, kind of villages down in England as well. So there's a lot of places that are quite, you know, out of the way, rural and very kind of sparse. Um, yeah, so it was just important to me that we got the the characters, you know, spot on, um, that we cast people that would really deliver. And I think, you know, Michaela, had, had, she's, you know, done quite a few films now and she's doing very well. Um, so she really delivered. Emma was um, a little bit less experienced, but we thought she really had something special as well. So we were very happy in the end with what she delivered. Yeah, and I, I think you, you mentioned about the fish out of water aspect. I think you're, you know that 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 really I think separates us a little bit too because I think yeah, as an American going there, um, you know, I think if you did use like you know maybe UK actors from London, you know, you know, or the characters were from London there would be a sense of sort of the interplay, like you said, of like knowing how to navigate a, a more remote village, um, probably understanding some of the cultural differences there. Whereas, you know, like I think the bar scene is a really great example of that, where you've got Jess and, and, and Andrea who, you know, are, are there, you know, trying to get food, trying to get this or that. And yeah. they, they kind of don't know what they're in for, whereas Tommy and Nate go in there and they're much more just like, give, give me our beers and let's go, uh, you know, you know, get after these women and knowing probably too that the bartender was not going to be someone or the barman was not going to be somebody who uh, was going to be too concerned with what they were trying to do either that, you know, if they're, you know, we don't see this in the film, but, you know, because again, from a, um, uh, the, the Hitchcockian standpoint, right, is that, that Jess comes back and, and, and Andre is missing and that's where our, our plot point is. But if we were to think about that, that if, you know, we're talking about Tommy and Nate having to walk someone who's completely inebriated and, and having trouble standing up out of that bar, that barman probably isn't going to, you know, he's going to mind his own business or kind of just not going to care so much about that. Yeah, he's going to be very kind of apathetic, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we were kind of like in the back of my mind, at least when I was writing it, I kind of had the the notion of um, American werewolf in London. So that was kind of in my thinking. And a few reviews have actually picked up on that in terms of like the, I guess, the opening, the opening 40 minutes of the film. Yeah. Um, yeah, that you've got these, uh, you know, two fish out of water American characters, and then they kind of wander into this bar that's very kind of, 
it's like being in another time and place really and then you know it's not very welcoming Mm -hmm. yeah but i think you know especially the way andrea handles being in that bar that is very much the way an american would that that part of it definitely felt like okay they're definitely americans like the way (laughs) that that andrea went into that bar not really picking up on on how the barman was or or maybe not maybe not so much not picking up on it but not caring right not thinking it's a big deal that you know and then also too just thinking like okay these two guys not a big deal we'll we'll get them to get us free drinks and not really think anything of it um i think that is that was definitely a, sort of a a good american touch there that uh you know almost like the the ugly american um when they travel abroad they just sort of think that everything's there for them and so let's just go into this bar and ask for food and get drinks that you know early in the morning and not really think anything of it um that definitely really and i think it also played a really good part in um you know i don't know like from a you know except you you mentioned the um, american werewolf in london i think for me i yeah that's a good point i didn't consider that as much because i was thinking more in the hitchcockian uh vein just because of a lot of the way the, the the cinematography was with a lot of the shooting um, and that, you know, there's that idea of the characters somehow being complicit in their own downfall. Um, and Andrea's character, it's like, you, you can kind of see the inevitability of it where it's just like, yeah. you know, that again, that ugly American who, who thinks they know everything when they go to another country and not really picking up on any of the subtle differences there that, that again, I think a, a, an, a, an English character, you know, coming from like London or something would have picked up on those things uh, a little bit better. Uh, I think that that really worked there. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that was definitely something that we were, you know, thinking of. Yeah. And I think even Jess's character, I think what's great about her character as well is that she kind of still has a, a bit of that sense too, that she's, sort of expecting certain things from from these situations. Um, yes, she knows enough to, I don't even know that she necessarily didn't trust Nate and Tommy um, when, when they come into the bar, as much as she just wasn't interested in it. She wasn't interested in the game of trying to play around with them, get them to give them free drinks or whatever. She she just kind of saw them as like, okay, I'm not, these, I'm not interested in these two guys. We should just keep moving and not, and kind of mind our own business. Um, which there is a kind of a different sense too from, um, the American traveler, there is that American traveler who is more like, you know, let's not make waves while we're here. Um, sort of the, uh, you know, the only thing you should take with you is memories or whatever, that kind of concept um, that, that, that you know, she kind of had a little bit more of that, but there is still also a sense of like, I don't know if entitlement's the right word, but when things start to go bad, I think initially she feels like, okay, there's certain places that I should be able to turn to, to get help um, that. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and to be honest, in America, it would be the same thing if she was in a remote area of America. You could you could do the same kind of story there. Uh, but I think it works better as an American that there's that sense of entitlement that I think American travelers sometimes have. Yeah, I think, you know, it's also that difference between, you know, rural life and sort of city life where, you know, if you live in a city, you get used to things being open, you know, yeah. you know, dust till dawn and you, you, you get used to if you need someone you know, like the police or someone to come, they're, they're there within, you know, 10 minutes. Well, ideally, anyway. Um, uh, yeah, so they kind of, they don't quite realise how cut off they might be. Yeah, yeah, I think that, that part of it played really well, too. And, and again, it's, a, it's an interesting duality, because again, with the other two characters, with Tommy and Nate, they're 
they're playing on that the remoteness or they're they're trying to take advantage of the remoteness that's something that they want um and and they're trying to play it to their advantage in these situations whereas for dress jess and andrea it makes them more isolated yeah exactly yeah i would think you know they're kind of restricted and obviously you know they're kind of going in slightly unprepared, or at least Jess, from Jess's point of view, she's, um, you know, not massively prepared in, you know, what they have to do to, you know, get from point A to point B. Um, obviously, you know, Nate and Tommy have got their kind of plan of traveling across the highlands. Yeah. So they, yeah, they, you know, obviously they, they've got a car as well, so that helps, um, but they're very kind of planned in what they're doing. Even if, you know, they've got these little side missions that kind of distract them. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, here, of course, I, you know, I, 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 we're starting to get into that territory where I might be starting to give give pieces away because I think this is, you know, it's such a, a great plot point there. And um, I, I think I think one of the things, too, with this movie for people that are watching it is that I think when you get to the bar scene, it feels like kind of a lot of these sort of missing woman kind of films where, uh, you know, again, the character of Andrea is in a way she's, she's um, contributing to her own downfall um, by seeming, you know, by being so, well, what, what's the word, you know, so you know, adventurous, I guess is one word, but also naive and sense or, or thinking that she's better than everybody um, and, and not wanting to be as responsible. Uh, and I think for people watching this, I think they should just trust the, the process and, and know that, yes, this is probably what you've seen a lot of times when you get to this point. And then when it starts to unfold and um, it, it, it starts to take some twists and turns that I think makes this a, a, a definitely much more interesting than the usual paradigm of the, the one missing person and the other person stranded trying to unravel the, the mystery of it. Yeah. No, I think that, you know, that that's exactly what we were going for. Yeah, I think that that was, was really fantastic. Now, one other thing I wanted to touch on is, you know, we're talking about the cinematography in this. And I know you you weren't as available for the production, but was that an idea, too, going into making this film that you were going to maybe get, you know, a drone pilot and, and get a lot of these really nice overhead shots that, that we saw there to, again, sort of drive home the expansiveness of everything, to juxtapose that with that, that claustrophobia that you were talking about in the darker scenes? Yeah, definitely, yeah um so yeah among kind of like the regular people that nathan works with he he knows the drone pilot so that was always in our mind to do that and to kind of you know have an expansive world um the, there is that kind of sense that you know a lot of low budget films they have um you know lots of drone shots and it's becoming almost a bit of a cliche but we felt like you know it really felt essential as part of the film that we would, you know, make use of all these wide shots. So in terms of the drones, you know, just getting these nice wide shots and really showing off the landscape to just show the scale of, you know, them compared to the Highlands, basically. Yeah, and I think it works really well, again, in sort of that juxtaposition that you talked about, that when, you know, during the daytime, right, you're just, you can see just for miles, right, that, that it's just this big open yeah. expanse. I mean, it's above tree line, you know, you see sheep kind of roaming the hills here or there, but for the most part, it's this big open expanse. 
But then when it gets dark out, right, that area suddenly shrinks because there's no light. There's no way to see where you are. And uh, I, I think that really that really played well. So I, I agree with you there that I think you're right, that sometimes with the low budget films, I think, again, I think that's that that issue maybe of with technology being, you know, more readily available between, you know, digital cameras, uh, drones, um, you know, you don't have to rent a helicopter to do these overhead shots. Now you can have a drone um, do it for much cheaper. That There's that democratization that I think on the one hand makes it so, you know, a movie like like this, it's this, this kind of thing is much more accessible to give you more options. But then, yes, maybe there's that sense that it, it can be overdone in, in the wrong hands. Um, but yeah. I, I felt like here it was really necessary to have those shots. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, ordinarily we wouldn't have kind of had as many as we did. But I think, you know, it's part of, you know, making having a sense of that scale, really, and really utilising the size of the landscapes. Um, you know, it's not, you know, sometimes you'll get them in the films where there's just, you know, loads of shots of all these buildings and, you know, it doesn't always feel necessary. It just, you know, it doesn't necessarily now make films look any more expensive. You know, whereas it used to be maybe 10 years ago, if you had drone shots in, you know, your short film or your your low budget feature, it made it look a little bit more expensive. But now it just feels, um, you know, people are kind of wise to that because it's, not that it's cheap, cheap, but you know you can get drone drones for reasonable amounts of money now, so they're quite easy to come by. Yeah, well, it's like, right. It's the idea of the establishing shot, right? That like, yeah, you know, in 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 this film, it's literally establishing something, um, where as opposed to just sort of being there to pad out the movie or you know add add minutes to the film or something like that. Um, and I guess that that's the point, right? Is it's it's supposed to be there to establish something. Um, to sort of further the story. And I mean, I, I think, you know, we talk about, you know, people always talk in the United States, and I think probably maybe the same thing in England, um, you know, I, I, I think to some extent about Nemesis, but, you know, the city of New York being a character or the city of London being a character in the movie. And I think what those drone shots does, it, it would do is they establish the Scottish Highlands as being a character in the film. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I mean that that was another thing that we really wanted that to make the location feel, you know, as you say, like a character and feel integral to the film. I think you know sometimes you'll get a film where you don't really get a sense of your location or because maybe they've they've had confined you know shooting or they've had to shoot in you know a few days that you they're working around the fact that they want to hide what they can't show. So, you know, here we were very much wanted to show the locations and the backdrops. Yeah, because it, it, I think what's, what's great is, right, you think of like a lot of low-budget movies where it's like, okay, the movie's supposed to take place in Los Angeles, but they're shooting it in Michigan, or they're shooting it in, or it's supposed to take place in New York, but they're shooting it in Montreal or, or something yeah. like that. And whereas this takes place in the Scottish Highlands and you're shooting it in the Scottish Highlands. And I think, um, and, I, and I think too, I think it, it's important that we, we don't get any sort of backstory of either of these groups of characters before they're in the Scottish Highlands, that they're, everything is taking place there they're all there they're, yes they're coming from outside of there but they're in a way i don't want to say dropped into this location but that they're everything's kind of done in this 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 sort of fishbowl in a way yeah i mean we wanted to have the film to kind of 
Um, you know, it takes place over the course of just over a couple of days. So we wanted it to kind of feel very confined in terms of time as well. And particularly the kind of last half where, you know, essentially when it gets to the darkness, it's all, it's very kind of immediate film. Yeah, it, it does. It does. I mean, that's definitely another area where I would tell people watching this to just, you know, again, trust the process, because I think, yeah, earlier on, the scenes tend to be a little bit more expansive or, you know, there's they go a little bit longer. Um, and I think, again, that juxtaposition is really great that you've got like, you know, you've got the, the, the opening scene with Tommy and, and Nate where they're kind of going over their plans and what they've been doing and all of that. And it, it, it sort of takes a bit of time to play out. And then, of course, the payoff with that scene is is fantastic. I think that's just, you know, really great. But also, yeah, that juxtaposition that when we get to the midpoint and, and we're now at, at, in, in the nighttime, um, or, you know, we're starting to have things take place at night, it, it, there is a more immediacy. Like, things happen much quicker. They're not playing out. Um, I mean, there's a few scenes that play out a little bit longer, but even those play out longer in a way that, that, that feels much more organic. Yeah. And again, we were kind of thinking that we, you know, because you don't see it so much anymore, with like slow burn films and where they let scenes play out. So, you know, that's very much in our thinking when we were, you know, conceiving the film. Yeah. We, yeah. Yeah. It, I don't know if, if you have this term in, 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 um, in, in the UK, but in, in America, we have this term called velocitized, where um, if you're driving, say, you know, 100 miles an hour, 160 kilometers an hour on, on the uh, highway, and then you drop down to like 50 miles an hour to half that speed because you're you're getting off the highway and you're just driving in a normal area. That 50 feels like you're going like 10 miles an hour. It feels like you're going really slow. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think with a lot of these direct-to-video movies, especially action movies, I'm used to things just happening so quickly that that you know, let's just jump cut here, jump cut there. That yeah, when you come into a movie that has a little bit more of a slow burn, um, I think for sometimes there is that mindset of like my brain is velocitized to this quicker style of film, and it's just a matter of just sort of reversing, just saying like, okay, you know, trust it and let it let it go, and then you know, then the payoff is so great, I think that it, it that it makes it worth it a lot of times, and I think it's just a matter of um, you know audiences especially you know if you're like myself and you watch a lot of action movies it is almost a sense of like yeah um you know uh just sort of trusting that, that it's happening a little bit differently i think nemesis is another one that does the same thing where 40 the first 45 minutes there are these kind of longer scenes that sort of establish things a little bit more and um you know when, when the payoff is there i think that's where it really works is that you get to the to the, the end of the movie and you think okay this all worked like that um it's just a matter of giving the um the, the filmmakers that trust yeah i mean i think what the the way movies are made now that it's very much kind of like trying to grab your attention constantly i think yeah. even in like the mainstream things and you know disney things and marvel that you know they really want to kind of grab you from the beginning and not kind of let you go sometimes it can get i guess a little bit relentless um and you know if you know if your film's going on for like two and a half or three hours yeah. and it's kind of like non-stop um <laughs> I, I i guess it's like what scorsese said about some things now being more like a kind of theme park ride yeah. um but you know our thinking was that we wanted to kind of have something that kind of slowly simmered and then increasingly it starts boiling up towards the end um 
so yeah that was very much in our thinking to do something a bit more kind of old-fashioned i guess yeah and, and i think it definitely works from that standpoint i think you 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 sort of between the setting and the way the story unfolds and then again yeah with um i mean i mean again like you said like the, the entire cast did a really great job but i think you know it, it, it hinges on whether or not michaela longden can can kind of move everything along as jess i think you know she's almost sort of like the central piece that everything revolves around um and i think that, that all of that works in that sense that i i i definitely really appreciated it now it's it kind of nice to have a, a sort of a change of pace for me because i'm so used to just watching these these action movies where i'm just like you know every half a second i've got a new shot coming in yeah no i think yeah that was you know we really wanted to sort of have a pace and uh, you know, really build up to something towards the end, because I think you know sometimes I find films these days, you know, if you're watching them at the cinema, they're a little bit one-paced. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes that does work. I mean, you know, something like Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah. It's kind of a bit furious throughout, so you know, but that kind of does work really well. Yeah. Um, and it breaks up the pace well in between. But I think what we were really keen on doing was kind of having a, you know what we call a slow burn um yeah and just building up to a nice ending yeah and one other thing i wanted to touch on quickly before you know we, we sort of wrap it up is um you talked about covid being uh, a factor in, in the shooting did that also play into the fact that a lot of the scenes are done outside that there's there there aren't as many indoor shots was that a, a, a thinking or was it more like no this was how we're, we're writing it and it just sort of worked out that way uh, not really. I mean, when we started writing, I think COVID was kind of in the midst of things, but we kind of, they had a window basically to film it. Um, the, there was a cast of seven and a crew of like another seven or eight, I think. So, yeah, in terms of like the interiors, there was never going to be any trouble kind of making them work. Um, so... Our idea really was still to kind of do lots of kind of exteriors and make use of those, you know, expansive locations and then a few interiors here and there. Because also we had to kind of, we had to be wary of how many interiors we could have in terms of, you know, budget and things like that. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, with, with that kind of thing nowadays, when you do like a, an interior shot, is it a matter of just finding a location scout that just finds, um, I mean, is it uh, just finding a house that nobody's using or that somebody's willing to uh, let use for a period of days or something like that? Yeah, usually. I mean, Airbnb's quite good these days. So I know, you know, I think we, we used Airbnb to find a couple of locations or, you know, something similar to that. Yeah. Um, and a few of the other like horror films that I've scripted, I know that they use tend to use Airbnb. Um, and the, you know, you do have dedicated kind of location services as well. But I think it just depends on what you can get for a reasonable price. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I guess that's one advantage I think with this film is that you know a lot of the locations that you have, like you said, are 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 free, right? They're they're outdoors and they're also more isolated so you don't have to i mean you know other than a yeah. few sheep walking in on a, on a scene here or there there um there really wasn't much in that. I think there was a, a, a man walking his dog in the very first scene that i think again in a way kind of adds to it a little bit as opposed to yeah. distracting or anything like that yeah very much so so 
and you know we were quite you know i think it was quite well scouted i mean nathan knows the area fairly well so basically when he was shooting there this wasn't actually shot in the highlands it was more like the lowlands in scotland so it was a bit closer to kind of like glasgow um and less kind of out of the way than the highlands itself but all the kind of landscapes you know looked very you know match it very perfectly um and the village that they shot in was i think it's one of the highest points in scotland so it's kind of got that kind of feeling of being you know very wide and open and kind of above everything like a lot of the highlands highlands is um yeah and then there was a couple of other really good locations as well that you know they were all kind of within a reasonable distance so there's a rail yard that you know part of the finale is shot in which is kind of a really nice location um really effective i think um yeah so that just added something a little bit different just a bit of um you know an antithesis to all the kind of wide open country spaces to have this kind of old dirty kind of rail yard as well yeah, I thought that was a, that was a fantastic location, and um, yeah, I won't get get, get into it much either because I don't want to give away anything <laughs> there. But I I thought that was a really great. I I think the way that that location was used um, in in a couple of different ways. I I really again kind of with the juxtaposition of day and night. Um, yeah, I I really liked that as well. I thought that was um, the yeah that the usage of that location. I think there, there's even a scene where where characters being chased along the um. The rails and there's almost a sense of like kind of the old silent movie that you know they would use the kind of the, the rails as a, as a um you know obviously there's the, the the trope of the woman tied to the the train track but there's always a sense of impending danger with with rails uh, with, with with trains and rails and um, yes. and i think that that even even that tradition you know just seeing a, a, a chase through that area without any active trains or anything i think uh, just it's still kind of added to that pending doom yeah yeah definitely yeah so i think you know we were quite fortunate with what was around and what was kind of within um a close area because the film was shot over 12 days so there wasn't you know a great deal of time that you could spend traveling around to different locations so everything kind of needed to be within a certain perimeter really just to maximize what we could shoot yeah, yeah, and I, I think that that part of it works. I mean, I, I think that's the key, right? It's I think you know from a writing standpoint to write something that works in that kind of an environment organically, so that yeah, it doesn't feel like anything is being limited by the fact that you 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 had those limitations in in shooting. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of the locations had been scouted before I'd finished the script. So in terms of like the rail yard whilst I was scripting or whilst I was in the process of scripting Nathan had scouted it and sort of sent me a few pictures and said you know I'm thinking of having this you know at some point near the finale so yeah that kind of influenced the way I wrote and I you know I get a sense then of the geography of the landscape in my script so that's interesting. So, so in a way, like it was kind of more of an organic process, even there, where like you're you're yeah. writing, where in Nathan's scouting locations, giving you some ideas like that, and then you're sort of incorporating those things as you go. Yeah, very much so. And I think again, this has a kind of benefit. We did have some benefits of um, 
this being during lockdown and you know this was a point where you know you could travel out to go you know walking and stuff but you couldn't go so you know nathan would normally be out partying and you know gallivanting around <laughs> but um obviously nowhere's open so yeah good time to do some location scouting um you know go for a few nice walks and around the locations so you know he really got a good sense of um you know where he could shoot and what would look really great on the film you know and finding the the rail yard was part of that as well yeah and i think it, it, it that really there, it that really comes through in the film um so that, that is interesting that yeah that maybe yeah the fact that he had more time to find the locations because of the reality of covid uh that that, that that's sort of an interesting side note that that's that's where, where that came about yeah i think just in terms of you know pre-production and prep you know we did have a little bit more time to do certain things so we could spend a bit more time on the casting um and you know the script itself was you know fairly simple in the end we'd mapped it out to a point where you know writing it was quite simple you know i knew what i wanted to do which would match what nathan wanted and you know, it was only a couple of drafts, really, and then a few minor changes here and there to get to um, a shooting script. Yeah, now, now that I imagine from a writing standpoint, that's generally not how it works, right? Where in um, a lot of cases, you're just you just sort of put out the script, and then the the film company takes it and and shoots it, um, and maybe makes changes to it or edits it. Um, but this is this is sort of unique. Maybe this also or renegades where they come back to you and say, can you write some scenes for Danny Trejo or something that that's more more the exception than the rule. Yeah, I think, you know, there's, you know, different companies have different ways of doing things. I mean, in the low budget horror films I do um, nowadays, it would tend to be, you know, I'll do like a, a one draft and then I've handed it off and then they will. They, by the time they get to filming, they've probably changed certain parts to, you know, reflect maybe new locations or um, new new characters. I think with the Van Helsing film, for example, um, there's four kind of female protagonists who go and get lost in these tunnels and then Van Helsing has to come and save them. Um, but in my original script, it was two guys and two girls, like two couples. So... Uh, the dynamic of that's been changed since I handed it off. Um, so I'll be interesting to see, you know, how close it is to my script, the actual film itself. Yeah. Now, has that one not come out in England yet? Um, the Wrath of Van Helsing? Uh, no, it's not out in England yet. I think so. We don't have Tubi over here, so I'm not too sure. Yeah. So it's not on amazon as far as i know so i'll have to have a look later i think but in terms of when darkness falls that was very close to my final script i mean i would say you know 95 percent yeah and i mean i imagine like you know obviously you know any any kind of writing that you're doing is is you know sort of uh, important for you or to, to do but there must be something maybe a little different where it's like you're sort of on this collaborative process throughout um where you're it's kind of it, you know even even being involved with the casting um that it it kind of feels like more of your baby i guess in that sense yeah yeah very much so. i mean this was i mean this is but you know why i wanted to do it really i mean 
you know, my, myself and Nathan have been meaning to work together for quite a while. Um, and we've got a couple of other things, you know, lined up as well. So, and that's going to be very much the same where um, I'll probably be, you know, a little bit more involved, you know, this time as well in terms of, you know, producing. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it, it, it really comes through kind of, you know, throughout the film. Um, and I, I think, yeah, I think for people out there, you know, here in the U.S., um, you know, I think it's, it, this is a good one to, you know, just get out and, um, and, and, and rent it on, on, uh, on Prime. Um, so the film is uh, When Darkness Falls. Before we wrap up, though, Tom, is there anything else about the film that you wanted to say? Uh, I think, yeah, really, I just, uh, yeah, we'd like people to, you know, you know, see it if they can. So, you know, at the moment it's out on Amazon, uh, probably September time, it's going to be on Tubi and a few other things in the US. And uh, yeah, we'll hopefully get some more territories lined up uh, before the end of the year. Yeah, because I think, yeah, I think the guys at the DTV Digest covered this and it's not out yet in the UK. Yeah, no, yeah, not, not yet. I think... Um, it should be out before the end of the year, but we're we're just waiting for a confirmed release date at the moment. And then yeah, yeah September it should be out in more you know, on more platforms in the US. Yeah, but for, for right now people can can rent it um, on on Prime, um, which I think yeah, yeah I, I think this is definitely for people looking for something, uh, especially you know the, the fans of this this podcast who may check out more action stuff. I think. You're looking for something a little bit different, but I think it's still, you know, I think that for that slow burn uh, uh, approach of a film, I think this this definitely hits all the marks. And I think it's worth it for people. You know, you're looking for a, a, a film to rent on Saturday night um, you're, with your, you know, your spouse or, you know, uh, friends. This definitely fits the bill. I think this is like a kind of a fun, nice uh, a Saturday night thriller for sure. Yeah, I think, you know, that's what we were aiming for. So hopefully... Yeah, hopefully we've done all right. I think, yeah, we'd just like people to see it, you know, uh, give it a nice review on IMDb. Um, yeah, and just, yeah, enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's definitely worth checking out. Now, uh, in terms of other projects you've got coming up, so we, we talked about Renegades. That's coming in October, I believe. Um, but I think that's the current date for it. Yeah, uh, we haven't got a confirmed release date yet. Okay. But it should hopefully be, it'll be US first, um, and that should be before the end of the year. Okay. Um, and then it's got an exclusive window in the US, so it's gonna, probably going to be early next year for other territories. Okay, yeah, and I mean, yeah. that one looks like it's going to be exciting. I, mean, I think, you know, again, based off what Nemesis was... Um, uh, I think this is going to be another another exciting one. So definitely, we'll check that one. And also, we were talking before. You've got um, a project you're um, working on with with Mark L. Lester, who, uh, who directed Commando. Yeah. So I'm yeah I'm currently working on a kind of horror adaptation of Cinderella. Uh, yeah. Mark Mark is producing, and then uh, he's co-producing with another producer he's worked with a few times called Mark Amin who's he's done quite a few films as well so he produced monsters ball and filth with um james mcavoy oh, yeah um yeah so it's gonna be we're just in the process of kind of scripting at the moment so there's a few changes and then hopefully that will shoot before the end of the year 
Excellent. That's exciting. Yeah, no, yeah, because Mark L. Lester, I think he's just sort you know, you sort of think of, of him from a director standpoint. I mean, he's done some of the, the best. I mean, he's, uh, yeah. you know, Showdown in Little Tokyo, Commando, um, Firestarter. It's just, yeah, just kind of, you know, even even kind of ones that maybe aren't as, as big, but still kind of fun, like uh, The Base or Hitman's Run. Um, yeah, he's done a, a bunch. So I imagine for you, as someone who grew up with, with some of these action films, to, to be able to, 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 to do something <laughs> with him has got to be got a, a, kind of a, a big deal. It is. It's just really, um, it's a bit of an honour for me because I am a massive fan of Mark. Um, yeah, Commando is an all-time favourite. Showdown is as well. Uh, you know, he's just done so many, you know, classic films. Um, so, you know, he really knows what he's doing. And, you know, I've kind of had, I wouldn't say massive interaction with him because it's just, it tends to be over kind of um, Zoom meetings and yeah. uh you know, script meetings, and there's quite a few people involved. So um, I get a little bit of interaction with Mark, but, you know, you, you, you just, you know that the knowledge is there and, you know, there's masses of experience. So, you know, I'm learning a lot along the way. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. I didn't even realize he, because, yeah, because he's been doing more production stuff than, than directing lately. Yeah. I didn't realize he, he also was executive producer of The Gardener, um, the Gary Daniels, which I, I still haven't seen. Yet, yeah. But, um, yeah. Yeah. So he's, he's still kind of in that vein. So, um, yeah, it's kind of cool to see that. But I think that that's really awesome that you're going to be, you know, doing something with him. I think that, you know, I, like you said, it's kind of early, early in the stages, um, so that, <laughs> you know, it isn't even, even shooting yet. So yeah. kind of further off in the future. And yeah, that one is going to shoot in the UK. So there's going to be a British production company um, are going to be taking care of the actual the shoot itself. Um, and I think, yeah, Mark will probably be over to kind of oversee things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one other quick thing um, um, before we wrap up is I, I do want to drive people also to um, your Flickering Myth articles, because I think they're they're fantastic. You had one um, released today about Star Wars, um, which I, I was kind of I just realized I, I think I checked um, Flickering Myth before our, our, <laughs> our, our conversation. And then I figured I would just check it again just to kind of make sure I had yeah. everything. And I was like, oh, there's one that just was released today. Yeah, so yeah, I've been writing for them for about 12 years now. Um, yeah, I'm quite a regular contributor and I've covered kind of just about every topic possible. Um, I think I've got a Don the Dragon Wilson one due out soon, so that'll be in the next few weeks, I think, coming up. Um, yeah, the essential Don the Dragon Wilson film. So I won't, I won't spoil it. <laughs> yes, no, I think that would be a good one to check out. I know, I mean, you did a, a great one on uh, on Dolph. Um, that's one, and I remember, and of course, um, you know, uh, the, the Van Damme one. I think your most recent one that I had read was the Van Damme one um, with Double Team and Knockoff, which, uh, yeah, uh, that was. I mean, I I don't think I saw a knockoff in the theater, but Double Team actually, I saw in the theater. I actually took a date with me to see that, um, and um, I remember, yeah, she was she was. I don't know if impressed is right where she was kind of, <laughs> she didn't know what to make of it necessarily, but, um, but yeah, yeah I, I, that, I thought that was a really great one. So I think, yeah, for people who, who, you know, listen to, to, to this uh, podcast, read the blog, um, you're, if, if they're not familiar with your post, cause I know, like, I think, um, the, the Dolph Lundgren one you did, um, uh, the guy who's, who's, uh, working on a, a Punisher, um, book, I think he had posted on Twitter that one. Um, yeah, so, yeah. He's a good friend of mine. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we've known each other a while as well um, from back on sort of Dolph Lundgren forums. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so they've they've kind of surfaced on Twitter, um, some some of the ones. But I, I think, um, yeah, I think your most recent one on Star Wars, I think, is one that, um, I, I think for for people of a certain age, you know, people who <laughs> uh, have grown up with a certain Star Wars, I think, yeah, it, it 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 encapsulates, I think, a feeling that we all had when the Phantom Menace came out in 1999, um, that. You know, all of us had been waiting for for years for for a new Star Wars movie, and then we get the Phantom Menace. And I just remember, I had friends. We would go to co- uh, this this diner um, after we'd go see a movie, and we kind of sit and have coffee and talk about how great we thought the movie was. And we realized we weren't doing that for the Phantom Menace. And yeah, yeah, <laughs> I remember that feeling as well. Yeah, and I think yeah. there was a sense with those with those movies that we were just expecting the next one to you know like we we knew what we had with with star wars and return of the jedi or sorry star wars and empire and i think you're right about return of the jedi that i think because star wars and empire were so great that maybe um we you know uh, forgave certain aspects um i just i always loved admiral akbar in in <laughs> return of the jedi so that's why that one's always got a, a, yeah. a nice spot in my heart for the, for that one but but it's almost like with each successive star wars iteration and i think the, the mandalorian tv series w- w- was great but i think there's always that sense of like okay this next one's going to live up to empire you know and i guess you know thinking yeah. that way that, like that and yeah. and eventually there's a sense of like okay no maybe you know what what you thought you were going to get with these movies that's not what disney wants to do with these movies that's not what um the current you know what what, what the market is is dictating or something like that yeah but i think it's interesting that you know there's been this kind of idea maybe circulating around the internet that maybe the the star wars prequels are being kind of reappraised slightly yeah um that you know people have a fondness for them but i think what that comes from is that you know the people that watched that when they were sort of you know 10 yeah they're now you know adults and you know they still have fondness for that in the same way that i had fondness for you know new hope and empire strikes back i mean i'll, I'll still maintain obviously that the originals are much better than the prequels yeah um you know even generations aside but i don't think that you know you know big fans of the originals will still look will look back at the prequels and think actually you know they were quite good i I just think that it's you know the people that watch those as kids have kind of come of age now and then you know the kids that are watching uh you know the force awakens and obi-wan the series now you know they love that stuff so that's their kind of generation um and you know these have always been predominantly marketed for you know youngsters basically so you know under 20s and i think there's a there's a kind of bitterness i think to maybe a few like a minority of star wars fans that you know because say the boba fett series or obi-wan doesn't quite live up to empire strikes back that you know it creates a certain anger in some people and i i find that a little bit pointless really i mean you know if you don't like it you don't need to watch it i mean they're not really being marketed for you know people over a certain age they're being predominantly marketed for you know people who are under you know 21 yeah yeah it's it's an interesting thing when you think of star wars and empire um because you know i mean when afi put out their 100 movies 100 films list both of those movies made the list and yeah um, I don't think that there has been a Star Wars film since Empire that you would be putting on any kind of top 
10 top 100 list of all time films. I mean, you know, Empire and Star Wars do kind of hold up that you could put them on a list that has films like Casablanca or The Godfather. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's the quality of filmmaking you're talking about there. And these just aren't that movie. And but in a way, it's almost like expecting it's hard to even expect that kind of quality. I mean, you know, you think of you know, we were yeah. talking about Goodfellas earlier. I mean, how many movies has Martin Scorsese put out that are as good as Goodfellas? I mean, my wife and I watched uh, Wolf of Wall Street the other day, and we're like, this is there's a lot of kind of over the top ridiculousness happening here. But we watched it right after we watched Goodfellas, so it's like, are we just being harder on this movie <laughs> because we just watched Goodfellas? And, yeah. and maybe that's the standard that you know that our generation is holding. I mean, I was very young when Jedi came out. I was four, um, and so. For me, of course, having a lunchbox that had Ewoks on it was fantastic. Um, uh, but, you know, when I watched Jedi in the context of the first two movies, again, in that idea of like two movies that were top 100 of the 20th century kind of movies, yeah, Jedi definitely doesn't hold up. But I think there is that sense, too, of like you just kind of let it go. Um, though, though, I mean, American film films didn't really let the Godfather three go. So, um, so, so no. <laughs> you know, Jedi is probably better than Godfather three, but, but yeah, I think yeah. we all went into that Phantom Menace expecting, you know, AFI hundred movies, hundred films, you know, kind of, you know, short list kind of movie. And when it didn't happen, uh, you're right. I think we, we started to expect, okay, so part two is going to be that level of movie. Same thing doesn't happen, you know, part three, um, you know, I remember a friend of mine went and saw part three and um, when James Earl Jones's voice comes in, um, he was doing a, a like Verizon advertisements at the time. And um, yeah. my buddy just started like heckling and kind of making like jokes and like, the, you know, like James Earl Jones selling variety or something like that. And, uh, and I remember I was thinking, well, I really liked part three. And then when he started kind of picking it apart, I was like, yeah, you know, you're kind of right. Like, you know, again, I, I think even for me, I kind of forgave part, th- you know, not part three, but, you know, the third of the prequel trilogy. I kind of thought that that was better than it was. And, you know, again, it doesn't really hold up compared to those those earlier films that were, were kind of just classics on a different level. Yeah. But I mean, I think there was just in general, it, they were made at a time when you know, there were lots of these auteurs really making great films at the time. And, you know, George Lucas was among that. Yeah. And he kind of, you know, he's pioneering the kind of blockbuster and really kind of trailblazing the kind of film that we are used to, you know, on a weekly basis now. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he's doing that, you know, alongside being, you know, in, you know, in the same ballpark as Coppola and Spielberg, and Scorsese, when he was coming through. You know, all these great directors making films exactly their way. Um, Whereas now it's a lot more of a kind of product mentality. So I think it's, you know, there's a kind of, there's an aspect of studios not really wanting, sometimes they'll be daring, they'll give a director, you know, free reign to do something like Taika Waititi is getting at the moment. But, you know, other times, as we've seen with Disney, that they've sacked quite a few directors because, you know, they were too individual, basically. Yeah. So, yeah, they, they want something that's going to be attracting the markets and it's got to tick every box and, you know, adhere to certain things. So it's more about, you know, a product rather than creating, you know, a piece of cinema, I think. Yeah, that's a great point that I think maybe I hadn't considered about your piece on this is that like essentially this is like saying that like Scorsese sells the Goodfellas franchise to Disney and they start releasing Goodfellas movies. 
we can't expect those Goodfellas movies to be as good as the original. Or if you know yeah. Spielberg sells the the ET franchise, let's say to to Disney, and Disney's putting out a series of ET movies, they're not going to be as good as that original one. That um, we're expecting a, a level of movies that the is not really the goal from Disney's standpoint when Lucas sells yeah. the franchise to them. I mean, essentially, you know, they're making some, they're making placeholders until the next thing comes along. Um, and, you know, sometime, sometimes, you know, just being kind of okay is enough, you know, just enough to kind of keep your attention. I mean, I think, you know, Obi-Wan was quite divisive. It's kind of, I mean, did you see the Obi-Wan series? No, I haven't gotten around to that one yet. So yeah. I'm kind of behind on those. I've got the Mandalorian I, I started, but um, yeah, I've, I've fallen a bit behind. Yeah. I think the, the hockey season here in the United States took a lot of my attention. I don't too many games, but, but yeah, so I've got some catching up to do. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's kind of, it's serviceable, or I, I felt it was serviceable. It kind of, it got better as the show went on. But I think, you know, what it is, is that it's just meant to be the, you know, interesting enough to keep your attention and you know have you watching until you know andor comes along and then that'll be interesting enough until the next season of mandalorian comes along and then the same with all the marvel movies that you know it's one is a placeholder for the next one um so it's not about making great things they just want to make things that adhere to a formula that their fans like at the moment and i think you know the obi-wan series to me you know, TV series over the last 25 years have got a lot better, uh, you know, a lot more cinematic, I guess. But, you know, that felt to me a bit more like a throwback to things like Xena and Hercules, yeah. you know, which are good. They can't, they keep you watching, but they're a little bit, you know, hokey and a little bit cheap. Um, you know, whereas, I don't know, something like Stranger Things has a lot more, I don't know, emotional emotional grip i think yeah that's a really great way to describe it because you think of like xena hercules you think of like the the you know the the 90s 2000s syndicated you know action show that you know syndicated here in the u.s where it's like you know you you get back from the bar you know pub at three in the morning and you want to turn something on (laughs) while you know trying to keep the room from spinning too much and you know whatever it's like yeah hercules at 3 a.m works it's perfect you know and uh um and and that's kind of you're right like that that's almost a sense i mean i think there's almost a sense too of like they're stretching themselves really thin that it's like you know when you think of like stranger things the people that are making stranger things are just working on stranger things whereas it seems like there are a lot of balls being juggled um right now with disney where i think they're they're really worried about maintaining a certain momentum. Like you said, there's a placeholder for one thing to the next. And it's almost about, it's not really about the show itself being popular. It's about building momentum so that the next show keeps the subscribers, you know, keeps people subscribed, gets more people to want to subscribe. And, and, you know, for, for my wife and I, we're subscribed to Disney just because we have the Hulu subscription and then I subscribe to the ESPN one and Disney just comes included with all three, you know, as, as a package with all of them. Yeah. So, you know, we would never drop it, but I think that's the mindset. It's almost like, 
it's it's almost like they're taking these pro uh, these these properties that they own and they're using them just to keep perpetuating the the subscription process that they don't want to turn into Netflix where they have to keep upping their prices or they have to keep finding new ways to maintain a subscriber base. It, it's just using these properties. Oh, we've got a, a a Boba Fett show. You know that's what that people need to see this Boba Fett show and everybody's talking about it on Twitter and they they you know you you want to be the person who does it and then. That's just, like you said, just building momentum to the Obi-Wan, to the Andor series and so on. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, they're not setting out to make anything kind of terrible. And I don't think some of these shows are as bad as some of the, you know, the diehard fans might say. Um, But, you know, it doesn't, I guess it annoys people that, you know, they're quote unquote woke or whatever, you know, people might complain. (laughs) You know, they're not quite as well crafted as, you know, the original films. I think with Marvel as well, you know, it's just a case of, you know, they're doing so much that it's, you know, they're spreading everything quite thin. And, you know, you're even as far as Marvel, this phase has kind of petered out a little bit because it's just gone kind of down after the Avengers Endgame, which was kind of so big and so massive that everything else after feels like a kind of um, a cast off. Um, Yeah. yeah, So they're kind of oversaturated and there's a danger. I think that we're seeing that they might kind of lose a few fans because the quality isn't being maintained to the same level. It was maybe around Avengers Endgame and Infinity War time. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because it almost mirrors what happened with the actual comics that were released in the early 90s for those that like, you know, they released the the Infinity Gauntlet saga and it was so huge that they felt like they had to come up with another one. That's when they, you know, they had to come up with Infinity War to do something similar to that. But yeah. there was eventually that letdown. I mean, part of the letdown, of course, with Marvel in the early 90s was the fact that so much of their talent jumped ship to form Image. Um, so, so that obviously hurt a lot of their books as well, but there was a letdown too, where it's like, okay, I just see this huge, big, you know, crossover story arc. Now, what do I do now? I'm just going back to Spider-Man, just doing whatever Spider-Man does instead of seeing him fight with Silver Surfer and, you know, the, the Fantastic Four and all of this stuff to fight this, you know, bad Thanos character with his infinity gauntlet. Um, it's, it's almost like there was the letdown with the comics and they didn't properly, they, 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 it's almost like they, they they were building to it, I think, because the, the filmmakers are the same age, you know, so they remember the Infinity Saga being so huge in the early 90s. But I think it's almost like they forgot the fact that <laughs> after the fact, I mean, cause I remember for myself, I mean, I kind of I, I think part of the reason why I checked out of comics at that time was that it was just like there were so many that were expensive, like, you know, hologram covers and all of these different, you know, variants and things like that. And then um, Image had trouble getting their books out. But there was also a sense, too, of like, Okay, what what next? You know, do I want to keep? You know, I've just been buying all these comics to follow this huge crossover saga. Now, you know, I'm going to take a breather and, and not worry about comics <laughs> for a little bit. Yeah, I think you know, there comes to the point where, you know, maybe ideas start to get a little bit tired, and you you know, things are recycled, and also just in terms of like the Marvel the Marvel formula, most of the films kind of adhere to the same kind of structure and formula. And everything needs to kind of cram in, you know, the cameos and the, the your, inter, your interlinking, which sometimes can kind of affect the structure of the film. Yeah. And then, you know, they tend to run 
comfortably over two hours a lot often you know two and a half three hours nearly so yeah and you know kind of very very big set pieces i kind of i'm not a big fan of you know green screen you know being used so much so it kind of it becomes a bit intrusive for me and it kind of takes me out of it when you're seeing entire set pieces where you know it's just an actor against a green screen and yeah nothing on the screen is really that it's really real besides you know the actor himself or occasionally you know it, you know if like it's a cg josh brolin it's you know nothing on the screen's real right i mean that's a great point that you mentioned about i mean cause just again talking about when darkness falls where you're using real locations and they're these real beautiful places that the idea of trying to render that in in computer generated images would just completely take away from from what you're seeing there and yeah i think there's almost a sense i think that's part of the reason why people were not fans of the the star wars the prequel trilogy was that uh you know i mean every single one of the um the clone soldiers were cgi uh that you know, he was yeah. rendering entire locations in CGI, and there was something about the fact that the first Star Wars was shot in, like, locations like Tunisia, where it, you know, Tatooine looked real. Like, these places looked real, because they were yeah. real, I guess. Yeah, and they, you know, they built, you know, large sets as well, yeah. um, whereas I think George Lucas was one of the first to really kind of, I guess he kind of trailblazed using studios a lot, quite, you know, He'd set. He'd have CGI backgrounds. You know, he'd maybe have a few kind of props on the actual soundstage that the actors yeah. would be on. But you know, he was using entire kind of um, you know CG backdrops, and you know, he was the first to really kind of popular popularize that again. Um, yeah, so that's become almost the norm now with like Marvel films. So. You'll look at a behind-the-scenes thing, and it'll be just green everywhere. <laughs> yeah. You know, they'll be—they'll even be sitting on a green prop that's meant to be, you know, a dragon or something, or whatever it is, or, or um, I don't know, something like a motorbike or something. Yeah. No, no that's a great point because now, it kind of, you know, kind of going back to with the Star Wars piece, I think that might have been why people were. I mean, I mean, again, the, the first movie, the, the the Phantom Menace, that that sort of first prequel film, I think it was disappointing in the sense too that it was just like. Um, you know, Darth Vader as a kid just seemed like a bit much, I think, for a lot of people watching it. <laughs> uh, but you're right. Yeah. That, that was also the first time we we're seeing a movie where everything is being done. And, and I think at the same time, too, he was re-releasing the old movies with this added footage. And I think that was also something that was really yeah. disruptive to people. Um, and so there was almost like he was <laughs> almost like he was without knowing it. He was building this sort of animosity towards his own property with his diehard fans, um, kind of with these, these different decisions that he was making in terms of making the films. Yeah, I think, yeah, he was doing that. And at the same time, he was kind of, uh, as he did before, kind of revolutionizing certain things as well. So, um, yeah, it's diff- It's not my favourite way of doing things, really. And I think if you're looking at action films now, for example, yeah. um, you know, so much is done with, you know, CGI. Um, even as far as, you know, sort of, you know, gun effects and explosions yeah. and things like that. And now I know there's been big safety issues and things like that, which have kind of changed the. That's changed the attitude even further now after, you know, what happened with Alec Baldwin recently. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, you'll see more and more 
kind of films where they're not using blanks on set they're going to be using um you know airsoft guns and then everything's going to be done via you know plug-in and cgi yeah um but i do kind of long for the days of hard-boiled and things like that (laughs) yeah well that's going to be an interesting thing because like you know one area that i'm always very adamant about is that if there's animals um you know like a tiger or a lion i'd rather be a cgi tiger or lion even if it doesn't look as great because it's like you know leave the animal alone and you can do that and the gun part of it does kind of it it is interesting i think you know we think of uh, action international pictures you know some of the films that they made where you'd see like explosions and and things and you'd wonder like how safe are they with those kinds (laughs) of things and and i think to that sense it's like yeah a low budget film where maybe people are just throwing stuff together use the cgi's to make sure everybody's going to be safe but you're right from an action standpoint like you can't imagine hard-boiled being shot where it's just gun of you know it's just like cgi effects on the the guns and, and and all of that um it would seem really bad I, I think the blood piece of it too i think that seems to be for me where it's almost even worse is that like when it's cgi yeah. blood it's just, just one seems... of those things you can't really fake um, right they've never quite got it right i mean you could have the most money in the world and have you yeah. know 200 million to make your film and it's you still wouldn't quite get it right yeah yeah i think the gun part you can do with some clever editing but if it's not those yeah. blood packs exploding on somebody um it it really doesn't look right no and i think you know the difficulty is now because of you know digital being so quick you know you can shoot films you know in two weeks now whereas you know back when you were using film you wouldn't be able to do that so right you know not you know we're going back to the thing of you know people may be cutting corners but they don't want to set up squibs. They don't want to set up all these elaborate things when you can just do it CGI. So it's the norm really now. So, you know, it doesn't matter if you've got, you know, 200,000 to shoot a movie or if you've got 200 million, you know, most people are going to do, <clears throat> you know, the CGI option if they can. So, yeah, I think that tends to be the the norm now r- rather than, you know, doing it the practical ways. I mean, there's obviously a few people like Tom Cruise and Chris Nolan that as much as possible, they'll still use practical in camera, in camera effects. Yeah. 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 I think it's a, it's an interesting thing. I think, you know, um, I think in terms of like, I mean, I think one of the things like, like talking about, you know, when darkness falls, it's, you know, because it's being done on a smaller scale, right. You can afford to maybe do, more practical effects because there aren't as many, you know, shootings and, and that kind of thing. But yeah, you think of like a commando where, it, I mean, the kill count is just really immense and it's like, you know, just sort of going through people. Yeah. yeah that's a lot of, a lot of uh, packets to set up on somebody um, that's going to yeah. be, you know, um, just going to be there for that one scene where they kind of shimmy when they get hit with the machine gun fire and fall down. Um, but it also is something that can, make or break the movie a little bit where it's like you're just like wow that looks really good yeah exactly i think i think this is why also there's a lot of films now um you know from the sort of 80s and 90s that you know the kind of action films that used to get torn apart by critics back then i think they're being reappraised slightly because you know they do stand out in a way that you know you don't really see much of nowadays so um, you know, like even like you say with Commando, um, I think people get the kind of tongue-in-cheek aspect of it now, um, yeah. and they kind of like the simplicity of it, and it's you know good fun. But also, the way it's constructed is um, you know it's really well constructed, and you know un- 
it doesn't feel rushed you know whereas yeah. a lot of films nowadays might feel rushed you know, that goes as far as like the cinematography you know the music as well James Horner's score in that you know is one of my favorites it's just he did some really great scores back in then back in those days <clears throat> yeah, yeah so I mean the one-liners like that's part of the fun you know that's part yeah. of it and, and the different ways that people get killed I mean when 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 Schwarzenegger goes into that tool shed and just <laughs> pulling out, you know it's like it's kind of a, it's like a fun piece of it that I think is uh yeah is always really really exciting so um yeah um now you know uh, we're about to wrap up here uh Tom is there anything that you'd like to plug in terms of social media or any anything else uh, no, not really. I just plug uh, when darkness falls again, and also, you know, people are free to look at my articles on flickering rift as well as the like. Um, and yeah, and keep your eyes peeled for renegades later in the year. Yeah, absolutely. I think yeah, the, the flickering rift um, articles are great, and yeah, for for everybody, especially here in the U.S., um, when darkness falls, you can get that on Prime, um, rent it for uh, for four dollars right now, and I think it's definitely worth checking out. I think if you're thinking of like. What do I want to watch this weekend? Um, I think you should be putting it towards the top of your list. Yeah, it's also on DVD as well if you're a bit of a oh. physical media lover. Oh, good. No, I didn't know that. So, so they can get a, a physical copy as well here in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. So I think for people out there, especially, I mean, I know I have. Uh, there are a lot of people that listen who do have like these big physical media collections. Um, so yeah, if you're someone who does have, you know, even if you don't have a big physical media collection, but you're, you're someone who's a big fan of physical media, I think that's another way to go. Um, especially when you're supporting indie to, to buy the actual copy of it. All right. Excellent. Well, well, thank you again for coming on, John. Uh, sorry, I was sort of combine your first and last name together. And I said, John there. So thank you again <laughs> for coming on, Tom. Uh, this is a great conversation and, um, yeah, everybody should go out and look for, for when darkness falls. Yeah, thanks for chatting with me, Matt. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you again. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll talk soon. Bye, everyone. That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton.